You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Andy Casey, very good. You're going to do it again, Victoria. Stop smiling. It's not the high school play. Count. Oh, five, six, seven, eight. What? All that oh. work. Stand on your right foot. Point your left toe. Drop that shoulder. All that oh, pain. That's not too hard, is it? Oh, boy, do I hate show business. All that Come glitter. Come with your jokes is what I need. Bill, you love show business. That's right, I love show business. All that love. I'll go either way. It's showtime, folks. All that jazz. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. David Kittredge. How dare you call someone on my phone that's not gay? Also joining us in the booth is Ms. Emma Westwood. I just wish you weren't so generous with your cock. It's showtime, folks. On this episode, we are talking about Bob Fosse's 1979 film, All That Jazz. It's definitely not autobiographical picture about a choreographer slash director who's working on his previous film about a groundbreaking stand-up comedian while rehearsing his next Broadway sensation. It's definitely not about Fosse facing down his specter of mortality and expressing it the best way he knows how. Of course, we're going to be spoiling this film, so you have been warned. So, Emma, when was the first time you saw all that jazz, and what did you think? Going right back, Mike. I think the first time I was um, around 13 or 14, and I saw the film, just stumbled across it right from the start. I was completely hooked. I think it was because it is a, it has an element of surprise from the beginning, and then that incredible opening sequence and for me, at that time, I was particularly interested in music. So it just happened to hit a lot of familiarity points for me. So something like, for example, George Benson was played a lot in my house. So straight away having something like on Broadway, but even the Bye Bye Love song, um, we had an Everly Brothers album that was played a lot in the household. Being Australian, Peter Allen was very high on the consciousness at that time. He was in the 70s and 80s. He was kind of a national treasure here 
So this was the the pre-Hugh Jackman age. Uh, So there was a lot of points there that in terms of just, well, I guess you could say the colour and movement that got me. So this is really what I find the really interesting thing about this film is that you can watch it on a completely visceral level. And I would call it, that's that's how it hooked me, on a visceral level. And then you get to know, you know, you get to know more about it. I mean, and, and it's the kind of film that keeps on gifting to you on each viewing. When I'm 13, 14, I'm not interested in, you know, the existential angst of uh, a middle-aged man or anything like that. You know, get a bit older. I mean, I didn't even understand that thematically at that time, but you get a bit older, then the film says something else to you, and then even in preparing for this episode, and I thank you for this, it, it kind of gave me an excuse to do an even further deeper dive into Bob Fosse, which um, – the film revealed even more, which is saying something. It's quite unique in that way. I think there's only really a handful of films that work in that way. How about you, David? Lord, it had to be on video. It was almost certainly in high school. I remember liking it, but at the time, it, um, I remember Leonard Malton's review of it in his book, which was two and a half stars, which is basically a C. You know, it's like average. And I remember seeing it and thinking, like, there's a lot in this, in that kind of white suburban milk toast point of view, which, you know, I, I really love Leonard Malton as a person. I, I think he's a great guy from everything I've heard about him. But he really doesn't, like, his book doesn't like these movies that do anything that's not comfortable. Like, horror films are very low rated. A lot of sci-fi movies are very low rated. Genre movies are very low rated. Rated Taxi Driver, two stars. He rated Alien, two and a half stars, which I think he he changed later. So he rated, like, you know, all that jazz, two and a half stars. And it's like, you know, yeah, it's spectacular, but it's it's very, I forget what the word was. It was just like, you know, something like narcissistic or navel-gazy or something like that. I was just like, yeah, well... It's another one of these Hollywood creatives, like just being narcissistic and doing it about their lives. And it took me until I think either college or after college, just after college, when I probably saw it on Laserdisc, that I was like, wait a second. There's a lot, there's a lot in this film. There's a lot this film is trying that a lot of other films don't even remotely attempt. And, um, and since then, I've just loved it. And certainly when Criterion came out with their stunning Blu-ray, you know, I was already in love with it then. But it's, it's, I think we can honestly say at this point, the way that, that people view this film, it's, it's legitimately, I believe, one of the best movies ever made. It is on that top 100 list, at least for me. I think it would probably be on the top 100 list for a lot of other people, if not critics, then definitely filmmakers. I think there are movies that critics love, and I think there are movies that filmmakers love. And I think that that sometimes there's a crossover between the two. There's a Venn diagram kind of overlap. All that jazz, though, I think like Lawrence of Arabia and, and like, you know, a number of other movies, probably Hitchcock movies and, and other movies that kind of push it, very much a filmmaker's movie. Because as a filmmaker, you're watching this and you realize – Holy shit, you pulled this off. How on earth did you pull this off? It's just a stunning achievement. 
I always think that the age of VHS came much later than it did. Doing research about this movie, I actually picked up a couple magazines that were put out in late 78. I think there was a films and filmmaking, American film, Life magazine, and it was just a wonderful kind of time capsule to go through and see these uh, stories that were there. You know, you talked about Alien. I, I think it was the, the films and filmmaking magazine said that Alien was the most disappointing film of 1979 which is just absolutely hilarious and they trashed the shining too like you look you read all that like wasn't the shining up for razzie award oh yes yes it was just like can we just like go back in time or if these people are alive just like put them in a room and be like you are part of the problem you were part of the problem you may still be part of the problem it's like, you know, yeah, like, you know, everyone who came to David Cronenberg, like, 20 years too late. It's just like, yeah, I wish I'd been seeing these movies when I was in high school instead of reading Leonard Maltin's dumbass reviews, The Brood. The Brood was a bomb. It's like, really, Leonard? Have you seen a, a fucking horror movie? Long story short, I thought the video came much later than it did because... I just always assumed that it was like more of a mid eighties thing, but it was a lot earlier. I remember seeing this movie on VHS. My folks were watching it and I was really young and I'm, I'm, I think I was probably like, I don't know, nine, 10 years old. And this movie actually taught me the word fuck, believe it or not, because I remember actually pausing when they would say the word fuck. And I'm, I'm just like doing my thing, playing in the basement and stuff. My folks are watching this on the TV and I'm just like, what does that word mean? And then my mom's like, I'm very liberal mother and stuff. She's like, well, it's, you know, when, when two people have sex, that's also known as this word. It's bad. Don't say it. And then as the movie progresses, they say fuck in a different way. It's more like, you know, an angry fuck, like fuck you kind of thing. And I'm just like, well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> How can two people having sex, how can you add the word you to that and then have that as an insult? This does rather- Perhaps one of the most interesting words in the English language today is the word fuck. Out of all of the English words that begin with the letter F, fuck is the only word that is referred to as the F word. It's the one magical word. Just by its sound can describe pain, pleasure, hate, and love. In English, fuck falls into many grammatical categories. As a transitive verb, for instance, John fucked Shirley. As an intransitive verb, Shirley fucks. Its meaning is not always sexual. It can be used as an adjective, such as John's doing all the fucking work. As part of an adverb, Shirley talks too fucking much. As an adverb enhancing an adjective, Shirley is fucking beautiful. As a noun, I don't give a fuck. As part of a word, abso-fucking-lutely or in-fucking-credible. This movie really opened up a lot of doors for me, and I will also say that this movie, the last, say, 20 minutes of this film, totally freaked me the fuck out when I saw it the first time, and it's that visceral response that I really appreciate. I mean, you talked about The Shining. The Shining, also the first time I saw it, it was the only film that ever freaked me out enough that I had like a, a physical reaction to it. I got a, a headache watching it. And yeah, this movie, like the whole bye-bye life scene, just really weirded me out. And a movie that can do that when I'm nine, ten years old, great. A movie that can still hit me in the in the chest all these years later, 
fucking fantastic. And I just, I appreciate how much this movie can get under your skin. When you're talking about Cabaret, I've, I've often said Bob Fosse regarded that as a horror movie. And it's instructive to regard that as a horror movie. I don't think that all that jazz is entirely a horror movie, but I think certainly the last 30 minutes of this movie is a horror movie. And it's important and instructive to look at it that way, the way that it's cut, the way that it's structured, the way that it's performed and shot. It's a horror movie. I actually spoke to our friend um, Lee Gambin, who uh, told me that uh, Fosse was considering doing burnt offerings after Sweet Charity. So that kind of makes sense. He would therefore put that horror sensibility into uh, Cabaret. When you see the rock stars that are playing the the songs that they're having these uh, dances at the end, when you see them with their painted faces, okay, great. They're a rock band. They're doing their thing. They're kind of looking like the supporting band for the, the Paradise from Phantom of the Paradise. Then when the camera turns around and you see the audience that's there, they also look like they're in some sort of a horror film with the painted faces, with this kind of death mask to them. So... I completely buy what you're saying as far as that climax of the film looking like a horror movie. The one thing that I love about this movie is the rhythms. And we'll talk about the opening, but those montages of Fosse, sorry, Joe Gideon in the morning with the Visine and the Alka-Seltzer and the Vivaldi and just those little things, that whole It's Showtime folks montages and how they play out throughout this film – the way that we come back to them, like these little musical motifs or, or visual motifs, I just absolutely love that we have those. And they kind of signal like this is ratcheting up to another level. It's showtime, folks. It's showtime, folks. It's showtime. It's showtime, folks. It's showtime. Well, I think you can't really discuss this film without highlighting and going into deep dive on Alan Heim's Oscar winning editing because this movie, the way it was cut, I was going to say set the bar, but I mean, the, the, honestly, the, the truth is. What happened was Allenheim worked with Fosse on Lenny in 1974. And what they found was Dustin Hoffman's performance wasn't, and this is according to, I think, one of the, the, the Blu-ray extras or some interview with Allenheim that I read. Well, yeah, Heim's going to say pretty much the same thing. So I shouldn't tell the story. I'm just going to sound so smart. Anyway, long, but very long story short, basically, they wanted to improve his performance. So they fractured the editing style of that film. But when it came to all that jazz, Fosse and his co-writer, Robert Allen Arthur, baked that into the script. That was always part of the sell for this movie. That was always part of this movie. So it wasn't an editing room like save or something that was put upon this movie in post-production. This movie was always intended to be a fractured, disconnected, kaleidoscopic mosaic narrative. Well, it also plays right into the whole eight and a half as far as like the way that that is fractured as well. And I know that Fosse was a huge fan of that. And then he even used Fellini's director of photography, uh, Giuseppe Rotono, to shoot this film. And it just looks absolutely gorgeous. And we can even say Sweet Charity was based on Knights of Cabrilla, another Fellini film. 
But does he love Alex in Wonderland? That's really what I want to know. Like, what did he think of Paul Mazursky's magnum opus with Donald Sutherland, which was also about a freaked out director trying to make a movie? This is a hot take. Not as good as Eight and a Half or All That Jazz. Uh, the Twitterverse is just blowing up right now. All of the Alex in Wonderland fans. Oh, they are rabid. Yeah, I bet. Like, all the four people who have seen it. Yeah, it's interesting what you were talking about, Mike, with the the little um, It's Showtime sequence at the start with his um, pills and the Visine and the shower and how there's kind of little little changes to that each um, along the way that sort of shows the progression or the disintegration of the character. But the repetitive scenes of the film are both shown right up front. I mean, they're out of context, so you don't actually understand until the film plays out how they work into it. But you have the Angelique world, the the death world, and you have that, the morning ritual, both at the start, it's showtime into that opening, incredible opening sequence. So straight away, and then there's that, so that you've got this recall over and over again, and it gives this sense of this feeling of almost entrapment, like he's, he's like a mouse in a wheel just sort of going around or spinning his wheels. It's like, and I think we've all felt it, and that's the amazing thing about this film, even though it's talking about someone who's really living in a hyper-reality to what most of us live in, which is the showbiz world, but there are so many aspects of what he's going through that the average person can understand. And I think that's why, you know, it's been argued a lot how self-indulgent this film is and how narcissistic this film is, but yet still everyone can relate to it which is what has given it such an enduring quality. So that feeling of being in even, you know, stuck in the routine of our life. I mean, his routine is slightly different to what we all have, but he's stuck. And he's actually Fossey as a person or Joe Gideon is someone who you cannot extract from the showbiz world. I mean, showbiz is him. He is showbiz. And it's kind of inevitable that he's going to roll along and hit this point where, it's going to kill him. And that's what happens. When we talk about this film, because there are so many similarities and it's so obviously based on a lot of what Bob Fosse had done in his life and, and has certainly his romantic situation and his career and, and notable stuff that he, you know, directed, like <laughs> Lenny, what did they call it? The stand up, excuse me. That's a, it's very consciously imitating Fosse's life and, and not trying to hide it at all. But the character of Joe Gideon is fundamentally different from Fosse in a number of very distinct respects. First of all, I don't think Joe Gideon would ever have made all that jazz about himself. I mean, just just think about it. It's like his character is, he is self-involved, but he's not necessarily self-reflective. He's not somebody who actually, like, would look in. In fact, if he's doing everything he can to not look inside himself and not deal with his addictions and his compulsions. Fosse was far more introspective and, you know, as manipulative as he could be and as, and certainly as sexually prolific as he could be with all the ladies and, and all the workaholic stuff and the cigarettes and all that stuff. The picture of Fosse that you get from other, like, kind of readings of him, including the FX series Fosse Verdon, is not Joe Gideon. He's not as much of a, you know, macho, dick swaggering kind of dude. He's, He's a sensitive but compulsive artist who's incredibly introspective, incredibly concerned with how people view him and how he is viewed and how he is perceived. Joe Gideon in this movie, it does not appear that he could give a shit about how anyone, like, he's just there for the work. It's interesting to watch this because this 
strikes me as this is the man that Bob Fosse kind of wishes he were. Not who he is, but even like with the warts and all and the tragic flaws and like, oh yeah, he's compulsive, he's self-destructive, all that. But the stuff that really got under Fosse's skin, which was how he was perceived, the perception that he might not be manly because of like, you know, his, his vocation, like, you know, like, and his sensitivity, really, you know, that's all absent from Gideon. And so I think in a weird way, in kind of like a putting down oneself way, this is kind of a wish fulfillment movie for Fosse. In listening to Fosse talk about himself, he seems to see himself and, and, and his, even his success as he, he sees himself as being a fake, that he uh-huh. is somehow has slipped through the cracks. He's not a real choreographer. He talks about the fact that he didn't know how to choreograph, how originally he was doing what people did at the time, which was buy a choreography and actually do the steps of someone else's work. And then he slowly changed things and started developing his own style. But you really get the feeling that he does believe that all of this, everything, all of the bullshit, and they do talk, you know, there's this sense of bullshit about showbiz. It is just all bullshit. He doesn't, he's a separate person, but he's completely in part of the DNA of showbiz and he's kind of incredulous about it. I think the fact that he actually got Scheider to play the role of uh, Joe Gideon and it is a role reflective of himself, but I think that Bossy made um, an effort to avoid saying that it was him because he would have taken away his creative freedom anyway if he had have said this is about me by saying this is joe gideon then really when you're making the film you've got creative license it makes sense for him to say you know it's it's about it's someone else it's not about me i've taken (laughs) aspects of my life but it's not about me but having shida who is not a dancer who's not a choreographer it kind of shows that aspect of where he sees himself as a fake as well. He decided not to have someone as a dancer play himself, quotation marks, play himself in that role. And that makes sense, saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a guy, you know, who's just happened to have this success. I don't know how I've fooled them, but I've, I've fooled them. There's this really strong sense of that. Talk to a lot of creatives, especially creatives that are successful. You're going to run into that kind of imposter syndrome. I mean, it's, 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 it's so prevalent. And, you know, as much as Fosse wants to kind of poo poo the idea that he's like a great choreographer because what he did was he took other people's dance moves and kind of riffed on it. Isn't that what most artists do? I mean, you know, I don't even think Stanley Kubrick came up with like that perfect framing that he's known for with the wide angle and everything in complete order i mean he he, you know and even if he weren't the first filmmaker to do that we have centuries of paintings before that so it's originality is kind of what you do with what's there and how you riff on it and how you twist it and how you bring other things into it he's completely warranted to be an he's a great artist and he's a great original as well and yeah all art is derivative that's just the way it goes but you can see that's his frailty as a person within that because he became Bob Fosse, the choreographer, the triple winner, the Oscar, Emmy, Tony Award winner in the one year. And I don't think he he felt he recognised that person. But, yeah, so having Scheider in that role really, you know, really emphasised that. But also having, I think, watching Scheider play this part, 
and sell the role of the choreographer not being a choreographer is quite astounding. It's an amazing achievement of acting because actors act, of course, and they're all playing a part, playing a role. But in this case, he's playing a role with a whole lot of uh, people who know dance and he's actually has to show that he's a position. He has to be able to communicate this sense of authority over real dancers and I think he completely sells it. There's not at one point that I didn't feel that he wasn't a dancer. I mean, there's a couple of bits in the, the end dream sequence where you, he looks a little awkward, but it, it kind of works by then. You're right at the end of the film. So, and he's dying. So you kind of forgive him for anything, but the way he carries himself, I mean, he, he you know, he's obviously fit at the time, but he has that, you know, that sort of center of gravity that a, a, a strong dancer will have. And he just seems to be able to imitate Bob Fosse <laughs> and translate that into Joe Gideon in such an incredible way. When I was growing up, Fosse was a punchline to a joke that I never understood. Like there's that moment in the birdcage. What about me? What do I do? Do I just stand here like an object? No. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do Fosse, Fosse, Fosse. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla, Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. I don't necessarily know what that means, but now having rewatched all that jazz, going back and seeing uh, Sweet Charity and Cabaret, now it's like, okay, now I know what you're talking about. Now I know of that very distinct style of dance and that I love that Fosse again being very self-deprecating, talking about how, you know, his, uh, his feet would turn in and his shoulders would hunch and all this kind of stuff. And that's why he came up with this style of dance. It was all based on his deficiencies. If you haven't watched Pippin, which I think you can rent, it was videotaped during, I believe it's original Broadway run or toward the end of it. It stars Ben Vereen and William Catt, and that was what he won the Tony for, and Martha Ray. And if you haven't seen that, please do, because it's really, really, it's a very well photographed Broadway production, and Fosse's genius is throughout. The Fosseisms, like you were saying about Mike, the sort of the turned in the pigeon toes and his hunched shoulders and all of that sort of thing, how he was able to make a complete style that everyone wanted to do <laughs> out of his faults as such. They weren't traits that were, you know, encouraged in dancers, shall we say, uh, is really interesting. And it plays out, and all that jazz obviously has quite a bit of it in terms of the, the gloves as well, you know, this focus on on the hands and bringing focus to areas of the body that you don't necessarily associate with dance. Cause I, I remember actually once I was in, um, I was in Indonesia and someone commented on my fingers and they said, you've got really nice long fingers, uh, great for dancing. And my yeah. Western sensibility instantly made me go, huh? What do you mean? And then I realized the Southeast Asian style of, yeah, jazz hands. <laughs> the Southeast Asian style of dance is all that finger styling and the movement of the eyes. And Fosse does that in a Western way 
not a I, I don't see much of an eastern style in his but he definitely does it in a, in a western way and it, this amazing subtlety of the separation of parts of the body like he does a bit in in this where he'll get that uh, and Anna and Reiking does it so well that little sort of ripple wave in the abdominal torso or the tiny subtle hip movements and and so forth all that sort of stuff that's you know not about the feet it's about other parts of the body so i do remember pippin being on cable quite a bit when i was a kid and going back and watching some of this stuff about fossey when they played a clip from him as uh the snake in the little prince that was made yes is that a way that that just came back on streaming that like like just I've seen a lot of my friends on social media post about the little prince like oh my god I never saw this I didn't realize Bob Fosse I'm like yes and check out his moves and the filmmaker Justin Simeon who's the creator of Dear White People and, and he wrote and directed that film uh, did this Instagram story which I saw which had Fosse doing Snake in the Grass and then put to Billie Jean by Michael Jackson because so many of those moves are identical to what he did in Billie Jean like a decade later except Fosse wasn't original on even those moves. They were identical to other moves that were done by other African-American artists like a decade before that or not identical, but but similar enough. So it's not like, you know, Fosse like and his work, it's like it's very singular, but it's very much riffs on other stuff that came before. And even he would admit that. And then you look at Michael Jackson and and his and certainly his performance when was it at the Grammys that he that he did the moonwalk for the first time he won the you know so much Fosse in that and so much Fosse in some of his other stuff that came after there were commercials when you and I and probably when Emma when we were younger there would be commercials for Broadway or for Broadway coming to our city and Fosse was one of the first people to be able to do that and he would shoot his own commercials would shoot the dancers doing this and it was Great. Okay, cool. It, it felt like we had a little bit bigger of a culture, even though we were limited to three VHF channels and five or ten UHF channels. It felt like we lived in a little bit of a bigger world because of the embracing of dance and, hey, this show is coming to a theater near you. The commercials for Pippin were very, very significant because that was, I think, one of the first times that that had happened. And number two, I believe he paid for it. I think that Fosse actually paid for those commercials because Pippin had opened in previews or something and it wasn't doing as well or it had opened and it wasn't doing as well. And literally he was like, I am paying for these ads out of my own pocket. And after those ads started running, the box office started ticking up and it led to all these Tony nominations. That was a big deal for a prominent artist like Bob Fosse to be like, no, I'm going to like literally buy ads on local New York television and New Jersey television to sell this show. That's how much I believe in it. I'm putting my own money in. And it worked. It did. I think the, the show ended up going for six years. And I think you're right, actually, Dave. It, I, unless anyone would challenge us, I'm pretty sure it was the first example of uh, doing a TV commercial for a Broadway show. I mean, we used to have TV commercials for the art museum in town or the zoo, and it's like, I just don't see commercials like that anymore. Mike, when are we having a TV commercial for the Projection Booth podcast? That's what I want to know. I want you to buy 60-second ads on national television because, you know, the prices are coming down. 
I want to find the people that put together the Dianetics commercial because that used to get me every <laughs> single time. I'd be like, oh, this looks awesome. What is this? And it's like, Dianetics. It's like, wow, that's got to be fantastic. Nope. It's a cult. Sorry. The dance sequences in this film, what I really like is there's a kind of two, well, there's almost three types of dance sequences. So you got that. And I was talking to Lee Gambon about this, who, and I'll give Lee's book a little bit of a plug. He wrote Let's a book plug called Lee Gambon. He is amazing. We love yeah, Lee Gambon. He's incredible, and he wrote a book uh, called "We Can Be Who We Are: Movie Musicals from the 1970s." So, if you want a deeper dive into everything in the fossil landscape and the ecosystem, just to broaden your mind, read it. It's 800 pages, so it's quite incredible. Yeah, I was talking to him about this as well. So the, you've got this dancer's diegesis, right? So the music and the dance is presented in the context of a performance, right? So that's kind of pretty much the main type of dance in this, in all that jazz. So like if you had a bio, biopic about a, uh, a musician or something, that would be the style that you'd see this dance, or, you know, music as diegesis. But then you have also the integrated dance so the dance that's integrated into the narrative so in many ways that's as as we get more magical reality in this film that's where this goes so it moves into what is kind of in some ways a lot of the the golden age of um, movie musicals use the integrated dance sequences but then you also have things that similarly have the two styles like um similar to all the, all that jazz so things like sound of music south pacific they both have both of the styles but then what i like about this is where you have these sequences where they're actually talking it's actually a dialogue or a conversation but the conversation takes place against a dance and there's two significant moments of that in this film which is that that sequence where Joe is dancing with Michelle, his daughter, or talking with her and sort of workshopping a dance at the same time. And also when he goes in to um, see his wife or ex-wife, Audrey, played by Leland Palmer, and another similar sequence where it's played out against a dance or he's kind of talking to her while she's dancing and she kind of uses the dance moves as little punctuations and attacks against him. It's quite interesting, these sort of like emotive moments through it. You know, it's a film about dance that incorporates dance in some really, really beautiful ways. And the sequences, there's kind of the main sequences, of the opening catacol is essentially what you call a dance. Well, it, it, it plays out as a dance uh, sequence, but it isn't a dance sequence, which is what is the most incredible part about this this scene it's essentially a montage at the beginning of a film which is a very unusual point uh to put a montage you know a montage is usually sit somewhere in the middle to sort of move along the narrative a little bit and sort of condense time to use a montage as an establishing sequence i mean we have montages essentially under credits for example or titles or something like that but not in this way this is but like a post title sequence um yet we're introduced to the dynamic of all the characters the main players in this film within that montage to quite stunning effect i was reminded of another film that would come a little bit later which was the opening of staying alive which is how you don't oh do this God, scene you're not no 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 
we're talking about all that jazz and you just brought up staying alive. I'm sorry. I have to hit the, the gong right now. That's like, no, what are you doing? Oh, I, I know it's what not to do. I understand what you're saying, but oh my God. Like next you're going to be like, but the real, real discovery of that period was the apple and be like, okay. We've already done a five hour episode on the apple around here. So we don't need to go back to that one. I like what you were saying earlier about this kind of recasting, redoing the idea of Roy Scheider as Gideon, who is this not necessarily idealized version of Fosse. I mean, he has more hair than Fosse. He's a little bit sexier, possibly, than Fosse, but he isn't as deep as Fosse. But this whole idea, you already brought up uh, the uh, the stand-up, the, this movie that is being edited through there. And that's another one of these refrains that we get are lines from Cliff Gorman talking about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five phases of grief. And I love that he has pretty much rewritten history. So now it's not Lenny that he is doing, he is editing that he and Alan Heimer editing that it is the stand up and that it's Cliff Gorman who had been Lenny on stage, who had won a Tony for his performance, who should maybe have been in Lenny, but now he gets to recast it and have Gorman in this film and have all of these scenes of him editing that. And then we get those five phases of grief throughout this entire thing to the point where when we're not watching the stand-up being edited, we get the VO from that as Joe's kind of meandering through the hospital uh, in this little break between the musical scenes that we have, because we have some musical scenes where he's in his hospital bed and he's there both as the audience quote unquote, and as the director and those scenes of Scheider where he's both Gideon and the director Gideon talking to himself. I absolutely love those. And then, yeah, that little sequence in between where he's wandering around the hospital, he kisses that old woman and all of the voiceover is that stuff that Gorman is doing. There's a lady in Chicago, man, wrote a book, Dr. Kubler-Ross with a dash. This chick, man, without the benefit of dying herself, has broken the process of death into five stages. Anger, denial, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Sounds like a Jewish law firm. It's really hard not to look at all that jazz and not take into account the entire entire Bob Fosse career. There seems to yeah. be every aspects of all his films in oh, look I can, you could argue there's aspects of all his films in all his films it's just the way yes. it goes but especially all that jazz i mean you know that's where it seems like everything culminated and then and then he went off in a different direction with star 80 which was the only the only other film he made after the after all that jazz but um the cliff yeah this idea of cliff gorman bringing him into it when Hoffman played the role of Lenny, um, similarly he had a he had uh, with Shirley MacLaine playing the role of um, Charity in Sweet Charity. Right. That role should have gone to Gwen Verdon, and he knew that as well. But you know, forces that be at the time uh, wanted Shirley MacLaine in it, and I can't help but think. And watching Cliff Gorman, I, I never saw had the opportunities to see Cliff Gorman play that role on stage. But to see him do those little snippets of the stand-up, as they call it, in um, All That Jazz, in All That Jazz, makes me think I, I actually wish he was in that role. As good as Hoffman was, 
he just didn't have, he didn't seem to have that maniacal edge or the grittiness, which I think is what Fossey likes to go for, that he likes perfection, but dirty perfection. <laughs> and, and Cliff Gorman seems to have it. And he's just such a uh, wired actor. I mean, you know, oh, seeing yeah. him in the, you know, the boys in the band where he gets to play that overly effete role. And I think he was one of the few straight guys in the cast as well. And he was just sort of so over accentuated, but you know, they were all playing sort of in some ways little stereotypes. You see that and it's kind of like these alternate versions of Fosse films that I kind of wish I had have seen. Like even with Sweet Charity, Sweet Charity was a massive bomb. Although I love it. I just love that film. I think it's Fosse being enamored with film because it was his first actual film and he just goes, you know, he's in hyperdrive. He's He's framing the hell out of things. He's, you know, the colours are just... But then there's that alternate ending, which is the happy ending to um, Sweet Charity. And it's... Because inc- Sweet Charity, the end is incredibly bleak. I think it's probably one of the bleaker films I've seen because you travel with it across a, a long period of time and it's just completely without hope at the end and it's one of the few examples of where I've seen an alternate ending that's a happy ending and I felt that it could have been the better version of the film the alternate reality (laughs) in Bob Fosse films and yeah Cliff Gorman as Lenny plays into that as well Emma you mentioned his daughter and I, I love this whole thing of I tend to in my mind, I diagram out things and I had a, uh, a little diagram with Gideon in the middle and then all of the women in his life that are just kind of offshoots going on and just how important this is. I'm not trying to say that he's the sun and the women are the planets because they are much more than that. They have so much influence and just the way that he changes in order to interact with each of them. And then that the real woman in his life is this Angelique Angeline character played by Jessica Lang. And I just love those moments when he speaks to her and the way that she changes in those scenes as well, the way that her outfits will change, the way that she is getting more and more, I guess, feminized. Like she, she's very feminine. Yes. But the way that she'll, she has her veil off and then the hat will come off and then the hair will come down. And we just see this throughout the, these sequences. And I just love those, especially the one where it is his mother talking. And then you can see young Joe Gideon in the back, Keith Gordon, probably, or maybe not because he's so far off. We wouldn't know tap dancing in the background, just that, background, mid-ground, foreground of that shot is just so gorgeous. And I just love the way that that looks. And I love the way that these scenes act in the film. They are beautiful. I think that what I like to think of it as is that this idea of him literally flirting with death. It's that little interplay they have with each other. And she's, you know, she's his, his conscience really talking to him. There's this beautiful moment where she says, he talks about living with two women uh, and how one of them eventually leaves and says, um, leaves a note saying, I just couldn't do this anymore. Basically, I love you. So I had to leave. And he was referring to it. He's telling the story as though it was referring to him as the one that this woman loved. And Angelique says, what makes you think the note was for you? 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just gorgeous. But also that it's kind of like this dressing room, like the place that the idea that it's this cluttered dressing room with all the paraphernalia, the bits and pieces from his life all collected in a dressing room. Because no doubt the dressing room is the in-between, you know, the dressing room is a place you always go to. You go onto stage and then you go back into the dressing room. So it's a nice little little play on that and the you know he puts on the clown nose and everything and as we know that kind of that Pagliacci complex of the clown the performer you know this idea that the show must go on and you you know you might be smiling on the outside but you have to be uh but you're um you're crying underneath you know it's been played out a lot in cinema um and in performance but and, it, and it's the, the duality of the performer. It's just what a performer deals with. I mean, you know, you can't be on all the time, but you have to be on. It's even broader than that. It's about art and it's about being an artist. And even though the movie plays into some of, like, let's admit it, the most obvious tropes about being an artist and the most kind of self-pitying tropes about being an artist, because I think one of the biggest criticisms of this film at the time and kind of throughout, you know, its life is that it's kind of this narcissistic self-pitying thing, like, oh, I'm in love with death, oh no, you know, it's like this whole, you know, which which is minimizing, but there is an element of truth in that. It is There's nothing easier than saying, oh, look at me, I'm a tortured artist, and then doing it. The, the issue, and the reason that this film works and is a great film, not only just because of the way that it's made, is because Fosse was a great artist. Fosse did things that no one really had done in that way. Uh, and kind of, and it wasn't just about dance as a means of expression. It was how he marketed it, how he got it out there, how these things came out. Um, the scene that you were talking about with the two ladies is one of the most, and probably of the entire picture, the most direct throwback to cabaret in the whole picture. It's a very funny joke. One of the things you, were, you led me to was we have to talk about the production design of this film. Very few films of this period have kind of rewritten the book on production design the way that this film does, because you have kind of like the dream netherworld purgatory. You have the cheesy TV death thing. You have the quote unquote reality with the hospitals and, and rehearsal stages and apartments. Every single set in this film, you could literally watch this film from front to back and every single space that they, they shoot in tells a story. Every single one. And, and there's not one piece of ephemera in any of these parts, right down to that weird clock that he checks when he's romancing that dancer, whatever, like that weird digital clock thing, which is, and there, and then there's like, you know, the, and the art in his apartment. Oh God. Yeah. Which is riffing right on his apartment. Yeah. And, but I mean, but then you go to those amazing sequences when he's like, you know, under the knife and you have the dance numbers with under behind the scrim on those like scaffolds where there are surgeons. You can see the surgeons and the shadows performing surgery while Leland Palmer and Anne Reinking and the, the, the actor who plays the daughter, whose name I can't remember, are all doing their little shtick. They're, they're three songs and it's a riff on show business. It's a riff on the artifice of cinema. Um, which Fosse, even though he did very few films really as, as a major director, uh, possibly like the, the least amount of films a major, major director has done during that period, uh, that I can think of. He makes Kubrick look prolific. 
every one of his movies is notable. But going back to the production design, it's like it won an Academy Award. It won four Academy Awards. One was for, I believe, production design. Philip Rosenberg. I'm just going to throw out some of these titles because, like, you know, you just can't believe it. It's like Network, Eyewitness, for those who like early Sigourney Weaver, uh, Moonstruck, Running on Empty, The January Man, we'll forgive it, but it still looked really good, Bunch of Sidney Lumet, Q&A, A Stranger Among Us, Guilty as Sin, uh, The Pelican Brief, you know, Alan Pakula, Critical Care, I think that was also Alan Pakula. It's just amazing, like, the amount of artistry, like, down the line, and you talked about Giuseppe Rotono's cinematography, and, and you, it takes a lot of talent to make something look mundane, like, like some of those hospitals, like, you know, him just in the bed at the hospital flipping channels while, like, you know, the nurse is giving him whatever or taking his breakfast order. Like, to that glitzy, cheesy, like, dance number where, you know, he's going to die with all that weird, the people in the audience and, like, those weird mannequins with the hearts lighting up. And, like, it's insane. Like, it's just the scope of this movie and the vibes and the tonality. Because like, you talk to any filmmaker, it's like you say, every film, every work of art creates its own universe. And you have to set that up in the beginning. Like, these are the rules. Like, you watch all that jazz, you know that, you know, Freddy Krueger's not going to come out of, like, a, a, a mirror or something. It's like, you know, or an alien's not going to come out. It's like, there's no ghosts in all that jazz. It's like you're setting up a world, and the world has to stay consistent. You're buying into this world. But the world of all that jazz is spectacularly broad. And yet, it still feels consistent. And that is an enormous achievement and really, really hard to do. I mean, Kurosawa did it, but I don't know a lot of other directors that could pull that off. Even The Shining is reasonably, like, you know, the the, the dynamic range of, of tone in The Shining, even though it goes from quote-unquote real to crazy ghostville, is pretty narrow compared to something like All That Jazz. The stage setup that they have the opening number on that that wasn't a real theater that they like recreated a theater for that that's wild and you hear about this i mean like everybody every film fan who's maybe like never been on a set or made a film you know you hear about how much work goes into these movies and how many people and and how much expertise it's helpful sometimes to just be reminded that it's a psychotic amount of work to make a movie and to make a movie like this is probably psychotic multiplied by psychotic. It's exponentially psychotic. It's so much work, so many details, so much perfectionistic desire to get it exactly right, to get those dance moves exactly right, the costumes, the look, the saturation on the film, the production design, the performances. To have a work like this is... Like nobody who makes films, and this is, I think, why it's a favorite of a lot of filmmakers, and including the aforementioned Stanley Kubrick, who loved this film. It just makes you kind of sit back in awe. Like, how on earth did you do this? I love that he's playing with the artifice when it comes to the Fly With Me number, where you get to see the people running through with the smoke pots, and you see people with the flashlights, and then you... So it's like he's setting us up to be like, well, this is what is really happening in front of these backers, in front of these uh, money men that are there. But there's no way. There's no way that the smoke is the same smoke that comes out of the smoke pots. There's no way that the lighting is just these flashlights that they have. There's so much more to it, but yet he's setting us up to to say, oh, well, this is reality. This is really what's going on, but then just twisting it and saying, no, 
this can't really be what's going on and just how elaborate that number is. And I was just one more thing before, before I uh, uh, set down the conch. I was so happy to see Sandal Bergman in that number. Um, you know, we've talked about her on the show before. She was fucking fantastic in Conan the Barbarian. And here she is doing her thing. You know, she's a trained dancer and to get to see her dance in this fly with me number is just fucking fantastic. It's actually quite awe-inspiring to see her. And to see him, like what you were talking about, Mike, With he literally shows the smoke and mirrors of it. Right. He's also, the timing was just right for Bob Fosse to come about and create Bob Fosse's style because he's very unsentimental. And there was always, you know, this idea during the golden age of musicals of the the sentimentality, <laughs> um, the, the you know, the singing of love to each other and you can see that Bob Fosse, he doesn't believe in love in a traditional sense. He certainly doesn't believe in monogamy and amongst that uh, in the polyamorous relationships that he was involved in and no doubt is kind of, you know, rife throughout showbiz. There's hurt, there's frailty. You know, he, he, he was at the right time to just come out and show the grit of the musical. Perfect timing because, you know, with the whole changes in the 60s, just the social changes. People were ready. They weren't willing to buy the complete fairyland that those old sort of even the Busby Berkeley style musicals were presenting. So he just kind of caught on this slipstream of social, the right, the right timing, uh, the social conscience and, and just wrote it to this climax, which is all that jazz. I just want to throw out there that all that jazz is also a favorite of mine just because you get both Max Wright and Wallace Shawn in here, which are two of my favorite nerd character actors. They always bring something to the party when they come to play. Yeah, Wallace Shawn's just in the the negotiation scene, well, cross um, uh, cut with the uh, open heart surgery, isn't he? That's yeah, the only yeah. scene he really appears in. Yeah, that whole scene where they figure out that. Joe Gideon is worth more dead than alive. Talk about a cynical, cynical fucking scene. David Margulies in that in that scene is so great. He's so great. He's one of those character actors. He's best known really as the mayor in Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, but he's a huge theater actor. And I saw him in Angels in America on Broadway a, a million years ago. He is so good as the numbers cruncher. The scene where he's adding up all the, the costs is just phenomenal. Oh, talk about another cynical scene is when they go to meet with John Lithgow's character. I can see where it'd be difficult to hold a cast like that together. It's really a shame. And of course, even after four months, a heart attack, <laughs> there's no guarantee that he'll be able to work. No. Jules, but it's still too bright. Take number seven down to five. And he's the greatest. Eight down to two. Hmm. And Lucas, I think we have a sure hit. A sure hit. Set the first Reads like a dream. I'd love to read it sometime. I'll get a copy to you this afternoon. Oh, I forgot. Wait a minute. I've got one right here with me. <laughs> all this, these machinations to oust Joe Gideon and get Lithgow in there because he's going to play by the rules and Joe Gideon is just such a, a loose cannon. It's fucking fantastic. And he was based on Michael Bennett, right? Like John Lithgow's like sneaky, snarly, I believe, but he's kind of gay, right? 
Michael Bennett was um, partnered with uh, Donna McKechnie, but I don't think it was, you know, she was playing Beard. I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that Michael Bennett was gay. He was gay. We can say this now. He died of AIDS. Uh, he's a legendary Broadway director. He directed a chorus line, among others, and he died of AIDS. And yeah, he was gay. We don't, we don't, we don't need to beat around that bush. At all. I was talking with Lee about this because it's interesting that Nicole Fossey ended up uh, being in a chorus line. Was that before her father died? I think it was after, wasn't it? Oh, he was probably spinning in his grave. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, one would imagine that Fosse would have been like, well, it's a job. You're an actor. You go do that thing. I got you. I got you your SAG card. You had, you know, one line by a soda machine in this movie. So, you know, there you go. Anne Ryan King basically played herself in all that jazz. Well, as much as Roy Scheider played Bob Fosse, he didn't have neither uh, Gwen Burden nor Nicole Fosse appear in the Leland Palmer or Ursa Bet Foldy roles. I'd be interested to know what the decision-making was behind that because I don't think he was partnered with Anne Ryking at the time. They had they were separated. Uh, right. But he still made her audition for the role. Is that – I believe that's right. Yes, he made her audition many times for this role. To play herself, literally play herself. And ranking had to audition. And this is something she laughs about in interviews and like, you know, like, yeah, you maybe audition. He was a dick about it. But yeah, she got the role. I mean, can you imagine anyone playing Anne Ranking's role in all that jazz except Anne Ranking? It's like that's it's inconceivable to go back to Wallace Shawn for a moment. It, it's ridiculous. You can't it's like it's a singular, singular performance. Nobody else could have done that. Nobody else could have danced like that. Nobody else could have played that role. And we should talk about Richard Dreyfus originally having been cast in the lead role, too. Yeah, Richard Dreyfus was cast, and he was deep in rehearsals, and he was unhappy. He was he was very successful. He was just coming off a Best Actor Oscar for The Goodbye Girl. He was super hot, and, you know, Close Encounters was a huge hit. Jaws was a huge hit. He was a huge, huge A-lister, and he's just like, I don't think the director likes me. And so he... He, he said this to his friend Roy Scheider when they were over at his place and because they shared the same agent. And so Roy was just like, well, you're in rehearsals. You should probably, like, quit the, sh- the movie then. Like, you know, it's like if you don't want to be there, like, you, know, you should go. And Richard Dreyfuss was like, yeah, I should go. And Richard Dreyfuss then went off to quit that movie. I don't know what he did. I know that he was – after after his apex, um, he hit a few rough years because just due to his own, you know, kind of personal issues and addiction issues, which he got past, which, which is, you know, good. But then Roy Scheider got the call. Maybe he'd be interested. And apparently they ran into – he ran into a lot of uh, trouble from that because there were people at the studio who didn't want him. They were like, oh, what, you mean the Jaws guy? It's like, no. But Fosse fought for it. Yeah, the other Jaws guy, speaking of which – Freud had passed, you, you might have seen Robert Shaw in that role, and that would have been a very interesting movie. <laughs> that would have been fantastic. <laughs> he would have been, like, auditioning people, and he would have just dragged his nails across a blackboard and been like, you know... Sometimes the dancer go away, sometimes they don't go away. Uh, I'll never wear leg warmers again. With Dreyfus and, um, and Scheider being friends, and yet Dreyfus not getting along very well with Bob Fosse, um, Scheider did get along really well with him. I think they maintained a friendship after yeah. the, the filming until his death. They did, at least according to uh, Scheider's interview, yeah. 
he he did he did say that. There's a really good episode of the See Here podcast with Frank Santo Padre talking about uh, Dreyfus saying nobody wanted to see my little Jewy ass on stage. <laughs> But we don't get to see that much of Richard, um, of Roy Scheider. He just, uh, you know, really, when it comes down to it, we get to see he, he just does a couple of very basic dance moves. That's a, that's about all. And I was glad in that uh, the extras on the the Criterion Blu-ray that he does settle something that I actually read about from some of the articles from '79. There was one that said, uh, "Oh, there's a rumor that Roy Scheider would take direction from Bob Fosse through a um, you know little device in his ear." And Scheider actually says, "Yeah, when uh, we were doing that opening scene, he was up in the balcony, I was down on the stage, and he would." Feed me my lines. Tell me what to say. And I, I love that. I love that that realness comes through on the stage, especially those moments when there isn't dialogue, when he'll just like shake his head at somebody and, or like that little halfway grin that he'll get and the other person will grin back. And then it's a matter of like, is that person staying or not? I, I feel awful that we're going all the way back to the beginning of the movie at this point in our conversation, but just that scene by itself is so wonderful. And the way that that plays out the way that it's edited i love the 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 cutting on the people spinning all those dance moves and just to take that huge crowd of people down to that one line of dancers at the end of it and what that scene's what five minutes long at the most it's crazy how wonderful you you mentioned the the use of the montage before emma it's wonderful how that use of montage can just take that huge group all the way down to that amount to take an entire day or more of rehearsals down to that or tryouts i should say down to that little group of people and then you get the interactions between him and these people that you'll see again in these different uh dances throughout the entire film with the earpiece i think that bossy had to you know, obviously couldn't prep uh, Roy Scheider for everything that could possibly happen in that situation because they did actually create a real catacall environment, so a sort of anything-goes environment, which is strange because with Fosse, I mean, Fosse goes for this kind of level of realism in his films, yet he is someone who, uh, in terms of, I think, the direction in the dance or even in um, more intimate scenes, will be really, really specific, like where to put a finger, where to move, you know, how to move your head or something like that. And that scene also, I guess, you know, he probably had the trust of the people because it's so meta detailing this. He actually had people that worked with him playing their actual roles in, in his life, in Joe Gideon's life. So for example, the dance mistress who was, you know, bringing everyone together on the stage, he worked with her all the time. Bob Fosse worked with her all the time. So I, I'm sure there was a confidence there that he felt that he knew she could bring it together. He's a accompanist on the, the piano, uh, was that person. Then even going into the other scenes and um, like Alan Heim, uh, the editor, he played himself as the editor. There were a number of people who actually played their role in making the film within the film. So it's it's something that, that that's another thing that you can pick out if you're, you know, so inclined um, in watching the film over and over again, <laughs> you can just like find this detailing of um, of people in the background of, uh, of scenes and uh, who are different people just in Fosse's life. I mean, what was the scene? What was the moment where Nicole Fosse, she was beside the actual... The soda machine. 
she was rehearsing something, some move. And someone was like, can you do that somewhere else? Yeah, and she just, like, looked and scowled and walked away. I believe I believe it was before Erotica, I think. I think that, that was right. It's a cliche to call it a love letter to the theater and love letter to Broadway. But really, this is a love letter to Broadway. This is, I mean, you know, even though it's kind of portrayed in, in somewhat negative light, where, like, you know, yeah, we're making this ridiculous piece of shit, Gideon dislikes the play he's in, the musical he's in, very much, as shown by the scene which is so famous where they're doing their first run-through and all the actors are doing the lines and then they they start laughing hysterically and they get and the volume gets turned down and all we can hear is Joe Gideon tamping on a cigarette, taking a pencil carefully, putting it behind his back and cracking it in two. It's one of the most perfect scenes in in a nearly perfect movie and it's difficult for anyone who has never been in a situation like that in the theater to to know what that's like but that's from what i gather and i've never been on broadway but i've certainly been in you know uh theater situations that seems to be exactly what it was like (laughs) and so much of that scene and the behind the scenes stuff and the running around and telling the actors like, you know, we all want to keep you around, you know, you know, when, when, uh, Gideon's in the hospital straight through, um, you know, uh, Leland Palmer's thing. Like, you know, I went to see him in the hospital and he's all so happy and he's ready for a whole new hospital number. And it's intercut with her actually visiting him in the hospital and he's intubated and, you know, looks like he's near death. It's about artifice. This whole movie is about artifice and how artifice is simultaneously necessary to help life happen and go down. And yet also artifice, if you buy into it too much or if you make that too much the center of your life, as Gideon does, will destroy you. Like, you know, you could look at this as his, like, unfailing running from actual uh, content, actual, you know, depth. You know, all he wants is the artifice. Because he knows he's good at it. He can manipulate, he can talk, he can do his little choreography or hand motions, or he can, you know, do all this cool stuff. But what he's really afraid of is being himself. And going back to what we were talking about with, like, the differences between Gideon and Fosse, it's like, it's it's really a question of whether or not Fosse ever was so afraid to be himself. Certainly anyone who would make this movie could not have been afraid to be oneself completely. But Gideon is terrified. Uh, and it basically, you know, you can say kills him. He has in this film the most incredible self-awareness of his own character. I mean, this people will talk about it in terms of being a therapy film as well, but it doesn't feel so much therapy as um, I need to go through this and have a realisation and change, and that doesn't happen in this film. There's no actual character change. It's just him confirming what he knows he is, and it shows incredible insight into his level of addictions in every way, um, substance abuse, sex, women, perfection, yet an inability to change. And I don't think even really would want to change. I don't think that's what this film's about. So you've got this with this film where essentially it shouldn't work because we aren't getting any sort of character journey as such. It's more a reflection on what is. Yet it does work so well. I think, ma- I think mainly because of the light and shade within it, visually and metaphorically, uh, figuratively and 
in every way, but also because it comes in so well and it ends so well. And I think Bossy's really good at doing that. He's really good at opening and closing films. And the third act is a really unusual, <laughs> unusual act. And it can be kind of perplexing to begin with, but it does actually get better on repeat viewing. And I think I it's agree. a really ballsy end. And if you can enter a film really well and end it really well, you can kind of get away with some purple patches in between. But um, <laughs> a lot of films don't end well, especially nowadays, I feel. A lot of films kind of fall apart in their third acts, especially in the horror genre these days. But Fosse's film that, where it ends with him being zipped in the bag and the ultimate showbiz song, There's No Business Like Show Business, with Ethel Merman, the world's greatest belter, just coming in and, you know, sending him out, and then going into the silence over just the, you know, the white on black credits. I can't think of too many films that have done that, but I think um, if I remember one film that did that that really had a big impact on me when I saw it at the cinema as well was... um, Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant, which was a harrowing film as well. And then you just went to this, you know, these black, white on black credits with not a whisper of sound. Uh, he didn't even have a leading track into it. It was just silence. So everyone leaves the, leaves the cinema and you've got this, everyone can hear them, each other, and you want to hide behind the sound when just have that moment of reprieve before, you know, you have to face people after a film like that. Fosse doesn't do it as quite as aggressively, but it's definitely there. It's like after showbiz, there's nothing for him. That's it. Silence gone. <laughs> it's a very unsentimental ending, which, you know, it benefits the movie, I think. And I, th- I think you're right about the ending in the beginning, certainly of this movie. If I was going to, critique it i'd say that it gets a little bit muddled after his second heart attack and he's kind of wandering around the hospital and wondering what the meaning of life is because the issue is here this is his arc he's 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 wrestling with his own mortality but his whole character has been set up to avoid any of that kind of introspection so it's kind of like when he reaches his quote-unquote acceptance really kind of up for debate whether or not he actually does reach acceptance, it rings sort of hollow because like, you know, so what have you been doing? It's, you know, you're, you're kind of, I found my, I found my sympathy for his character during this period. And I think a lot of the critics when, when this originally came out kind of honed in on this too. It's just kind of like, well, why am I rooting for you exactly? You don't even want to live. Like you're, you've been a shit to everybody. Um, and you can, you know, make movies about people who are shits. I mean, you know, it's like you can have that work, but you got to give me a reason why they're doing that. And I can read into it and say, this is all about him running from himself, uh, you know, with drugs or compulsions or women or, or work or whatever. It's him running from just sitting in a quiet room just with his own thoughts. He doesn't want to be in his own thoughts. He doesn't want to be in his own head. He doesn't want that introspection. That's really reading into it. That's not in the movie. And if we're going to look at just the movie, I think it's completely legitimate to say, you didn't pay for this. You didn't pay for this kind of catharsis. Like Bob Fosse and and the other writer, Robert Allen Arthur, who passed away himself uh, as this movie had come out and, and received a posthumous uh, Academy Award nomination for it. It's I think it's completely legitimate to say, 
we didn't have the emotional investment in Joe Gideon at that point where he was about to die and dealing with his own mortality to have sympathy for him because all we had seen was an hour and change of him basically acting incredibly self-destructive, talking to death, thinking it's cute, and suddenly he's faced with it and we're supposed to be like, well, yeah, what did you expect? It's like, where, where's the conflict here? Where's, what's, what are the stakes? It's like, you've put yourself here. You've made this bed. And yet, there's no moment, even in that moment where I think there's supposed to be a moment, there's no real moment where you get that he actually gets that, that he actually put himself there. You know, that this is all his doing and that he could literally change it if he wanted or he could have. Maybe it was too late at that point. But you get the sense that even if he did, like, somehow make a miraculous cure and get up and go back, he'd just do the same shit. He just pop the, you know, speed and like do the pills and the, and the smoking and the women. And, you know, yeah, if it wasn't like right now, yeah, three months, he'd die, six months, whatever. The conflict isn't in the character. The conflict is in the character of showbiz versus reality. And, uh, you know, or artifice. Yeah, artifice. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's where the conflict is. You kind of, we we kind of look at we look at it always in terms of a human character, but it's really interesting when you've got something like yeah uh, uh, an industry in this case or a city. You know, often you can get conflict by having New York in the seventies in your film. Just having New York, you know, and that's what's playing out here more than anything. Because you're absolutely right. Joe Gideon's just going to, he's stuck, you know, he's just going to go and do the same thing. What's he going to do? Go and rest, you know? There's <laughs> not one moment in this character that we see he's going to have a nice lie down or a sleep in on a Sunday. But, but think about how much more dramatic, and I, I believe how much more powerful this movie would have been had they done that work, but Fosse and his co-writer, and basically wrote a, like a five-minute patch in there where he actually gets it. And he's like, wow, I've been running from myself. You know, and maybe this is uncharacteristic, but, you know, this is a narrative. You have to have an arc. And that's, you know, the major – if there is an issue with all that jazz, that's the issue. And it's like, you know, maybe maybe he has a moment where he's just like, I put myself here. And, and if I get out of here, I don't know if I can do it, but I'm going to try to change. And then he dies. Now, that's actually like, oh, wow, you know, but it's too late. That's saying something. At least he would have an arc. Um the, the final number in this, he has literally resigned himself to his own death. And that's great. We, you know, we should all be so lucky when we die that we're resigned to our own death. But at the same time, it's just like, but yeah, but should you have been re- resigned to it? Is like, is that a good thing? Or are you just embracing the same horseshit that you've been playing your whole life? Is this the ultimate indictment of, uh, you know, a morally or spiritually bankrupt individual. What about his spiritual bankruptcy are you trying to say, Bob Fosse? Like, what is it that you're trying to say with this? And I think that's what tripped up a lot of critics. I still believe this is one of the greatest movies ever made. And, and, you know, for no better reason that we're having this conversation, that we can have a conversation about, like, you know, the meaning of life and all that stuff about this movie. I mean, it's, just, it's that's a pretty high bar. But at the same time, it's like, I think it's valid. I think, go back to your standard narrative um, tropes. Like, you know, what did Joe Gideon want at the beginning? You know, what got in his way? Where did he get to? Did he achieve it? Did he not achieve it? You know, it's like, what's the narrative arc? And if you're going to say it's like Joe Gideon wanted to get away from himself – 
and surround himself in artifice, then you have to go into why. You have to go into what. You know, you have to have him have his moment where he chooses artifice over reality, over his daughter and the people that love him. And then it's more powerful. But I, I honestly believe, and this is my main criticism of this film, which I, again, I think is one of the greatest movies ever made. They didn't do that hard work. They didn't make that hard choice. They did not have that character make that choice. And that I think is what's missing from all that jazz. And I think that's what's, that is the one thing that makes this movie imperfect. I think almost all of it is perfect. Maybe it could have been the best film of all time. I honestly think it could have been up there with like Kane and, and Vertigo and A Matter of Life and Death and, you know, and Rules of the Game and Eight and a Half and, you know, all those movies, like, you know, Seven Samurai. It's a good point, but it seems that it's kind of the film follows a similar trajectory to his other films, really. It's uh-huh. especially <laughs> Lenny, you know, I can see a lot of, a lot of Lenny in it. Sweet Charity as well, but Charity was an, uh, a likable character, you know, so. Charity was trying. She was the the one who really was the, you know, the the eternal optimist, which is definitely not Joe Gideon or Lenny. Well, just just look at Star Eighty, which is basically where what I'm talking about kind of ate the movie. I mean, Star Eighty is, and again, everyone should see it. It's a great movie, but it is really one of I, I really have to say one of the most unpleasant movies. I may have ever seen certainly one of the most unpleasant great movies you'll ever see because it is completely like it's nerve shattering and the end is about as negative and nihilistic as any ending of any great movie I've ever seen. It just leaves you with like, uh, well, I should, you know, just jump off a bridge now. It's like, what's the point? It's, you know, and I think that that's that impulse in Fosse to kind of glamorize the nothingness the nihilism, the like, who cares and who gives a shit, which is so powerful and all that jazz when they zip up his body bag at the end with that noise and and they cut that song real sharply. I think that that was his worst artistic tendency and maybe worst belief. If I knew him, I don't, I didn't know him personally. I can't make that judgment, but I think that that was certainly something as a, as an artist and maybe as a man he should have dealt with. It certainly made his films difficult to, for certain audiences, di- difficult to digest. And I think why a lot of his films, you know, well, well, why they've all been controversial, you know, no doubt Cabaret is the most successful for him. But Star 80 was like massively bombed. But unlike you, Dave, I think that's a great film. I absolutely loved it. And Eric Roberts is just shattering. Oh, no, it. it's a great film. I, I, I believe it's a great film. And I, I appreciate it a lot, but I do think that it is, it is bleak and unrelenting. And I would say maybe a bit pointless when it didn't need to be pointless. And I think it's pointlessness was part of what he wanted to say. And that nihilistic, nothing matters kind of attitude. It's very difficult to make great art, especially cinema where you have to be emotionally involved and be a complete nihilist. And, and I, I find it, because in the end of Cabaret, at the end of Cabaret, that's not a nihilistic ending. That's an impending doom ending. That's like, but look at like all of this, like hedonism, look at what this is going to bring. It was a warning and it worked. 
um, the ending of all that jazz, you can read the, the most optimistic reading is that he, you know, lived as he died and he stayed true to himself or whatever, whatever positive spin you want to put on that. But the ending of Star 80 is nothing but a lurid, horrible, depraved tragedy. And, and, and again, I will say, you know, I agree. It's a great movie. It's so well done and so well put together. And I just wish he could have done more, like, I guess a little bit of introspection, maybe in his own beliefs and how he approached art or how he approached certainly Dorothy Stratton. And, you know, I mean, the fact that I know her name, the fact that we're still talking about her and it's, you know, 2020, it's like, obviously she, she made an impact. So maybe, you know, the reality is maybe not as pointless and nihilistic as Fosse wanted to believe it is. So, I mean, I would just, I would just say reality kind of like disproves his whole bullshit point about like nothing's worth anything, which is what you're left with at the end of Star 80, which is why I think all the critics hated it and why it bombed so hard. Yeah, yeah. What was the line actually? The line from, um, on erotica, we take you everywhere and get you nowhere. That's kind of the film. That's a synopsis. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and play a trio of interviews. First up, we'll hear from editor Alan Heim. After that, we'll hear from actor Keith Gordon. And last but not least, we will hear from actress Deborah Geffner. And we'll hear all of that right after these brief messages. This episode of The Projection Booth is brought to you by Tor Books. When George Romero passed away in 2017, New York Times bestselling author Daniel Krauss finished Romero's final zombie tale. Set in the present day, The Living Dead is an entirely new tale, the story of the zombie plague as George A. Romero wanted to tell it. Read The Living Dead by George A. Romero and Daniel Krauss on sale now wherever books are sold. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Faith on a family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday B Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. I really want to talk to you about uh, all that jazz, but do you mind if I ask kind of how you got into the business? I was not a very highly motivated college student in New York City, and so I dropped out of school my first in the middle of my first semester at City College. I had always been interested in the idea of being a photographer. I had been taking a lot of pictures at that age. I spent a summer actually selling filters in a camera store. I really didn't like the retail trade at all. And I decided I would go back to school and maybe in the process, a friend of mine whom I had met the first year had discovered the film school at City College, which was called the City College Film Institute. And it was one of the oldest film schools in New York, but it was a very well-kept secret. So by the time I found it, it was between uh, leaders. Hans Richter, I don't know if you know him at all, but he was an artist. He made a lot of little expressionist films in Germany before he fled. He was uh, offered the opportunity to be the head of the film school. Well, he left, and a guy named George Stoney took over. 
for one season, and George was a great documentary filmmaker. He liked my work. And I discovered that um, I loved editing. I was the only student in several of my classes. I had to take my classes at night because there were no day session students. And a few years later, the, the school was closed. A little after I graduated from it, the school was closed because of some silliness on the part of the uh, president of the whole school. So anyway, that's how I got started. And then while I was doing that, somebody recommended, well, the head, George Stoney recommended me for a job carrying a camera up in the woods somewhere in the summer while a young director filmed his wife dancing through the trees. I think we've all had that on our resume somewhere. That led to a guy asking me if I wanted to work part-time in an editing house. So I did that weekends and occasional nights while at, at school. And I just loved it. And eventually, I was a sound effects editor, and eventually, uh, I got this uh, terrific break to edit some pictures. You worked a lot with uh, Cindy Lumet in your early days. I had been a sound effects editor and a music editor on industrial films, documentary films, and television series in New York. I had done a favor for a guy who was editing uh, sound effects on feature films. He asked me uh, if I would want to join him on editing sound for a couple of movies that were being uh, done in New York at the time. One was The Fool Killer, which not too many people remember, but the other one was The Pawnbroker, Sidney Lumet's movie. I found myself editing sound mostly on that. The Fool Killer was just a strange experience all around, but The Pawnbroker was, you know, a little earth-shaking. And then um, I did two more movies for Sydney as a sound effects editor. And on the third one, which, well, no, the second one was the group. The producer of the group, Sydney was off doing another movie. He was doing The Hill in England, and he never came to mixes. I never met him on The Pawnbroker, and I never met him on the group either. But at some point, the producer came in and suggested changes. And the editor wasn't there, so I called the editor and I said, you better call Sidney Lumet because this is not good. And Sidney flew back and bailed out the movie in some way. You know, he, he got back his right. He had final cut, I think, on the film. And then uh, I did one more film for Sidney as a sound editor, and he asked me if I wanted to edit his next picture, and I said, you bet. So I did The Seagull, and then a film called Last of the Mobile Hotshots, which was not the greatest experience. Uh, but Sidney was just a bundle of energy, and he stood right over my shoulder. He told me exactly where to cut. And I didn't always agree with him, but uh, as far as structure went and things like that, but we, we got along very well. I had to leave Last of the Mobile Hotshots because I had a commitment to do Mel Brooks's movie, The Twelve Chairs, over in Yugoslavia. And so I left it in the hands of my assistant, and Sydney, I think, was kind of pissed off with me at that. But a few years later, I ended up doing network for him, and it was uh, a very different experience and very pleasurable. How was that transition of going from a sound editor to a picture editor? Well, I desperately wanted to do it, and I was going to stop editing sound effects to really try very hard. I was going to apprentice myself to a documentary editor I know. Because I just felt sound editing was not sufficiently challenging to me. Before I could do that, this you know, great break for me happened when Sidney asked me to cut. And because he stood over my shoulder, 
I learned an enormous amount from him. I learned about making quick decisions and sticking with them for a while. And I learned how to read actors' performances. He was great with actors. He was great with cameramen. He wasn't great with editors for the most part for a while. And then he started working with Dee Dee Allen and he did Serpico and Dog Day with her. And actually, I was kind of surprised to be called to do network. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I had already worked with uh, Fossey at that point. And Fossey probably put some pressure, not pressure, but he probably suggested me to Patty Chayefsky. And when my name came up, Sidney uh, said, yeah, why not? And he never stood over my shoulder in that movie. So because I would have left at that point, I was a better editor than, than Sidney in a way. I was more fluid less rigid. Sydney had a tendency to, to be very mechanically rigid sometimes. And Dee Dee broke him of that habit. He really appreciated what editors could do um, after that. So he did, uh, they, they left me pretty much totally alone on the uh, network. It was one of the easiest and most rewarding films I've ever worked on. Sydney does not shoot, shoot a lot of material. I think we went into a Mitzen studio five weeks after they finished shooting, which is pretty astounding for a feature lens film like that. Yeah, it was ready. I turned it over to sound after 10 days, so we were pretty good shape. I love The Twelve Chairs, and that's one of the Mel Brooks films that I don't think gets nearly enough credit. It was so good. I didn't realize how good it was until later. I was a sound effects editor on The Producers the original producers. And I took over because Ralph Rosenblum and Mel, uh, Ralph was the editor on that. And Mel and he never got along at all. So there was a lot of tension. And Mel, uh, Ralph had another commitment. So Mel and the producer of the producers, whom I knew from a documentary I had done sound for, they suggested that uh, I take over the film. And I said, yeah, sure. With great trepidation. Absolutely terror. The thing that had to be done, there were a couple of things. One was getting the main title sequence ready. And that was not on me, really. That had all been set up and it was in the work. And the other one was the sequence in the middle of the movie where they buy the script from the Nazi and the producers. And um, it was not getting laughs. And the stuff on the, on the page, it was hilarious. And in the dailies, it was hilarious. So Mel uh, asked me to work on that. And he said, so I'll come in Monday and uh, we'll start. And I said, well, why don't you leave me a couple of days to look at the material and let me make a version of it. And I don't know where I got the courage to say that, but I did. And I recut the sequence the way I felt it was right. I discovered in the process, because this was done on film and you could see where the other editor, where Ralph had made his cuts. And my cuts were within a, you know, a third of a second on most of the material I used in that sequence. When we screened the film for cast and crew and other people on Third Avenue, I think it was an open screening with a whole section for cast and crew. The laughter was so enormous that oh, I just love the idea that I could take this material and make it work as it were. I mean, edit editors say that a lot, you know, let's make it work. Because the theory sort of Film theory comes to a crashing halt when you get into a cutting room. I've said this before, and you'll hear it from other editors too, but one of the difficult parts about being an editor is that you interpose yourself between 
the director's idea of what he shot and what he really shot as far as the movie goes. It's another rewriting process. And good directors understand that. You know, I just love the idea that I could take part in this. I could get a response from people. And uh, without uh, actually going deeply out on a limb myself, nobody was handing me many millions of dollars to deliver a movie. They were just paying me my meager salary. So I loved it. Tell me about the first time that you and uh, Bob Fosse worked together. Tell me more about how you got the gig for Liza with a Z. My, my late wife had seen Cabaret, and I hadn't gone to see it yet. When I got a call, she said it was just wonderful. I had to go see it. So I got a call from a producer I knew, a guy named Kenny Utt. I knew him from television where I was a sound effects editor, a couple of New York series. Kenny called and asked if I would want to meet Bob Fosse. And I, so I went to a Broadway art studio in New York, which is replicated and all that jazz right down to the faucets on the sinks. I met him right after lunch. He was standing in the middle of the floor, and I joined him in the middle of the floor, and dancers were sliding right up to his feet, like stealing second, you know? It was just, the energy in the room was absolutely spectacular, and I really wanted to take part in this. And anyway, we talked for a while, and I'm not a musician, so I, he didn't seem happy to discover that I wasn't a musician, but I really wanted to do this movie. And when I left the meeting, I called my wife and I said, I'm going to see Cabaret. I'll be home after the whatever show it was, whole dinner. I went to see Cabaret and then I really wanted to do, to work with Fauci. Uh, I didn't know what I was getting into, but I just wanted to work with this man because visually and then, you know, emotionally, I thought this was brilliant stuff. The next day, he called me, and Noah Kenny said, and said the job was mine, and we we worked uh, very nicely together, and so nicely that uh, when he did Lenny, he called me and asked, sent me the script, and I was thrilled by that script. And that's really a film that I became a, a full-fledged editor on. I just learned so much from Fosse about, again, flexibility and, and moving the eye within the frame, and then how to cut dance, and which is no different than how you cut anything else, really, because what, what an editor does is guide the audience to the next cut. Sometimes it's within the frame, sometimes it's juxtaposing different frames, but basically you have to just keep the story moving and, and make it interesting, keep the audience leaning forward and, and ready to move. So I learned that from Bob, and then on Lenny, which was a great script filled with complexity and time jumping and, and the various structural things. And on Lenny, um, he said to me one day, you know, I'm not liking Dustin's performance. It seems he's begging. And that's what was happening. Dustin, like many actors, wanted to be or wants to be liked. I Later, I did a film called Billy Bathgate, and Dustin was in it, and he was playing Dutch Schultz, for God's sake. And he wanted, you know, he really wanted to be liked in that movie. And he, he was a killer, a vicious killer. Anyway, and, and to go back to uh, Lenny, I said to Bob, I have an idea on how to make his performance seem edgier. And Bob said, take a shot. So he disappeared for a day or so, and I reworked a couple of scenes where I, well, the, the structure was basically Lenny is doing a routine, and we would then either go to 
what triggered it or come off before going into the routine, we come off something that triggered it. And what I did was mix those up much more so that the whole rhythm of his performance changed. It became much edgier because it was much shorter and tighter. And it seemed to just move. You know, I, I really became very confident of myself as an editor then. Uh, it was you know, several years into my career as an editor, but that was when I really felt confident for the first time, I think, that I knew that I could make a career out of this. There's a whole through line in all that jazz of the comedian, a.k.a. Lenny, and that whole cutting process. Was it as painful in real life as it is in all that jazz? <laughs> no. We worked together really, really well. You know, there was just a lot of give and take. Bob was very open to everybody on the set and in the cutting room. He would listen to everybody's ideas. There are a lot of people who won't do that. And I've been the same way also. I always show my cuts to my assistants and get their opinions on things and hope they're being honest. You know, what, what happened with on, on jazz, it was a little different. So it was always difficult to, to work with Bob because he was a perfectionist, but I, might, I think most editors are kind of perfectionists. He always wanted you to do better, and that's for everybody who contributed to the movie. So everybody really felt that they were doing a really important thing working on this movie and doing the best work they can, which every director should want. Right down to food services is doing the very best work they can. And then the film shows it on some level. People do a little extra. That's just part of the job. And we never had uh, disagreements on... Lenny or on Liza with a Z. You know, we might have differences, but then we discuss them and then work them through. I'll tell you something that happened on uh, Star 80, which was uh, the next project I did with Bob, unfortunately the last one. We were never happy with Meryl Hemingway's performance. There was one scene that she just didn't do it. As, as I remember, it's a long time ago, but there was, I believe a scene in the bathroom, she was supposed to cry, and the crying was not real. It was just fake. We worked on films for a long time, Bob and I, together. 11 months to 14 months on the three movies I did with him. Not counting Lines with a Z, which was pretty short. But it's a long time. It's almost a year to spend with somebody in a cutting room. And we usually would work a scene. I'd show him something. We'd work it till he was happy. And then we'd move on to the next scene. And we rarely went back. But one day he came in and he said, you know that bathtub scene? Let's look at it again. So we did. And he made a suggestion. And I did it. I tried it. And it was wonderful. And I said, that's a great idea. And he said, yeah, I'm not surprised you like it. It was your idea three months ago. People don't do that. So it makes you feel that you're contributing. But started that was, by that time, everything was good. We did have some tension on, on jazz. Uh, I'll tell you the story, but for one thing, Jazz was delayed twice. And this was a very big movie for Bob. It was, though he denied it, his story. And that comes into it later. But there was one, also I had had, um, my, my wife and I, my late wife and I had had a child around that time. Let's see, the film was delayed once because Bob wanted to cast um, the wrong actor in the role. He decided to change it the first day of production. Well, the first day of rehearsals, second day of rehearsals. 
the actor was clearly not taking direction, was trying to actually direct some of the dancers. And Bob was not happy. And we had all told him we didn't think this guy could do it. So we had to wait for uh, Roy Scheider to be available. They put us all on half pay. Roy was doing the movie. Well, they put me on half pay, and I think they did it with everybody in the crew because Bob wanted to keep his crew together. So by the time we started, there was an enormous delay. And then six months, three months, four months. And then we started, and well, Bob took a break around Thanksgiving to choreograph the erotica number. Our producer and Bob's co-writer, Robert Allen Arthur, died of pancreatic cancer. Earlier, people had heart attacks and healed and came back. People had babies on the production. It was sort of amazing. It was just it was like life. Anyway, Bob, when he finished, and we went way over schedule. I, I used to know the figure, but I forget how many. Almost double the schedule. Everybody said, Kenny Ott included. You know, we all said, Bob, take a week off because directors usually do. And it gives the editor time to straighten things out and get see how closely you can get to catching up. And in this case, Bob just, he wanted to come right into the cutting room the Monday after they finished shooting. We all thought it was a mistake, but he did. Uh, there was a great deal of tension between us. Partly it was my fault because I kept referring to the character as you. And he said, it's not me. It's Roy or it's Joe, but it's not me. And of course, the address on the pill bottle was almost his address. It was like one digit off. There were a lot of people in the movie who played themselves, me included. I just couldn't stop calling the character you. And he got pissed off. And one day he said, you were a better editor before you had a kid. That hurt me. That really hurt me. When I went home that night, I talked to my wife and I said, you know, I've got to change what's happening in the cutting room because I'm not going to. Two things. One, I really want to finish this. I want this. I want my name on this movie. There's going to be a great movie. But secondly, I knew I couldn't last as long as this was going to take to if if there was going to be abuse between us or tension between us like that every day. And it had been going on for about a week. Fortunately for me, sometimes editors have to think very quickly about the line they're crossing and then what's going on exactly. And fortunately for me, my first scene in the movie was coming up, and it's a scene where it's not in the movie anymore. But and you know, I, I try very hard to get most of me out of it. I wasn't much of an actor, but Bob thought I could do it, and he didn't spend much time with me. He was so worried about Roy. So, you know, I looked at myself, and I was not happy. But this was a scene where Roy comes in, sits down next to me at the cam. He's got a cough which I had lived through on two movies already. I was supposed to raise my eyebrow and look at him just in a, a kind of a, a disapproving way. And Bob kept the camera running, and he did a close-up of me in, in five consecutive takes. He would cough, and I would raise my eyebrow. And he kept saying, smaller, smaller, which is what most good directors say. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of me, but I have very big eyebrows. And the first take was not very good. But by the fifth take, my eyebrows were like the villain in a Chaplin movie. They were like two giant beetles flying up toward my forehead. And so when I cut the scene, I had used my first take. And Bob was looking over my shoulder, uh, 
at this scene. And he said, well, let's look at the other tapes. And I said, okay, but you're not going to like it. And I said, I'm much bigger in the other takes. And then, you know, anyway, he then, he looked at the other take, the rest of the take, the other four takes, and he turned and he walked across the cutting room and he kicked a wastebasket, which I never saw him do. I never saw him actually do anything physical, except dance, of course. But, you know, he just kicked a wastebasket across the room and he said, how could I let you do that? And I said, Bob, don't blame yourself. I'm not an actor. And Bob said, you're not an actor, but you're a human being, goddammit. I should be able to get a better performance out of a human being. At that point, I said what turned out to be magic words. I said, Bob, you know, that's the nicest thing you said to me in a week and a half. And he broke up. He absolutely broke up. And after that, it was just butter. It never came up again. And everything was absolutely cool. But I've worked with people that I don't like, that I you know, really don't like for various reasons. I've worked with people who don't have a lot of talent, but want to make the best movie they can, which is the most you can hope. And I've worked with arrogant people who basically have something in their head and they don't really think it can be improved. Is that clear? And I've worked with a couple of really unpleasant people. And I've had a pretty long career, almost 60 years. And there's only a couple of people that I really couldn't stand. And Fossey was just a pleasure to work with. Whatever people say, he was difficult. Yeah. And then again, I wasn't a dancer. You know, he wasn't, I wasn't a, a particularly a woman dancer. He wasn't looking to seduce me and he wasn't looking to, um, you know, I had no stake in this except to make the best movie I possibly could. So it was always a pleasure to work with him because I knew that was what was going to come. I mean, I just, I didn't know I'd win an Academy Award. I don't have that kind of a ego. But once the film was finished, I would have been really unhappy if I hadn't been nominated, I'll tell you that. Uh, and I wasn't nominated for Lenny, which Bob insisted I should have been nominated for, and he was right there too. But that's another story. You talked about the time jumps that were in Lenny. Were those kind of things in the script for all that jazz? Because you move around a lot in that film. The script of, of Lenny had a lot of time uh, transitions in it. In fact, uh, Ralph Burns, who is who was Bob's uh, composer and arranger on many, many pro projects, including film and theater. And Ralph used to say to me, or said to me one day, there's real time, there's flash forwards, and there's flashbacks, and then there's flashing time. And we worked in Fosse time, and I loved it because you had a lot of freedom. So Bob took what we had done on uh, on Lenny uh, and carried it to a much further degree in the structure. Again, working with Bob Arthur, carrying it, it was very tight. And a lot of it was written um, that way. But when we found that we wanted to make some major shifts and changes, it was extremely difficult. And I was talking recently to a director who really studied the movie, and she asked me specifically if I remembered any places where we did make cuts. Without her on the phone, I came up with one place, and I called her back, because she had read the script many times while watching the movie. I called her back, and I said, yeah, the sequence where he's comparing the um, angel uh, character to a rose, 
and talking about that. That's a sequence we cut a lot out of. But mostly we found ourselves limited because the script was so tight at that point. Within the scenes, of course, it was a lot of flexibility. Uh, the erotica number we added, I think, not a lot, but the dance was so beautiful that we really wanted each pair to finish. And we couldn't do that within the music as written. So I added, I think it was a bar and a half. I think Ralph, Ralph Burns never quite forgave me. But um, you can hear it if you're listening. You can hear the, the uh, repeat. And also at the end, the end dance number, which I wanted to make shorter to make longer. So we ended up, of course, making it longer. Later, he said he should have made it a little shorter. But that, too, has a couple of bars added. Again, it's such wonderful material. You hate to get rid of it, any of it. I just felt it was getting a little little long at that point. But I'm not going to complain. I've been dining out on that movie for 50 years. So. Look, I'm talking to you. <laughs> so You mentioned uh, Kenneth Utt and... He is like one of those unsung, to me anyway, I just haven't read and heard enough great things about him because I just always enjoyed him, especially later in his life when he was showing up on camera, when he was working, especially with like oh, Jonathan yeah, Demme. Oh, cops and things. Yeah, right. Or when he was in Miami Blues and he was the um, uh, Harry Krishna. He was so fantastic in that. You know, I, I don't think I ever saw the movie. I'll have to watch it now. Kenny was was an interesting, interesting guy. He, I don't know if you know this, but he had been a, a chorus dancer in uh, the original production of Oklahoma. And I met him when we were doing, I think it was a show called The Nurses, a TV show that was exactly what it sounds like, The Nurses. Um, it was done by the same producer who did The Defenders. I don't know if you remember that at all. But that was a high-class black-and-white lawyer show done in New York. And then he did The Nurses, which had a couple of seasons, I think. And he was the producer of Godspell, the movie version of Godspell. And he called me and asked me to do the show. That was after Liza with a Z, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I never had seen the show. I am not a guy who likes religious religiosity as it were. I had never seen the show, and Kenny said I should go see it with the director. And I had met the director before, and they wanted to hire me. And I turned it down, and Kenny said, go see it with the director. So I went and I saw it, and I really hated it. The kids in the show knew that uh, David Green, the director, was in the audience, and they were playing to him. And I could see it, and I'm just you know, basically at that point in my life, really a, a layman, but there was a lot of begging going on. And I told Kenny the next day that I just didn't want to do the show. And he said, go back again. Go back without without uh, David and see what happens. And I went back and I found the show very winning because they were not playing to this one guy. They were just having fun. So I did it. And that was also just a wonderful experience. So Kenny, yeah, he, he was he's had quite a reach in my life. Yeah. He was also the producer, I think, of um, of Star 80. And, and he was much loved in New York. There is a film that was made. I don't know if you can find it anywhere. It's called The Utmost. Yeah, anyway, he was, he was quite a character. You talked about how you would call 
the Roy Scheider character, the the Joe Gideon that you would say you when you're talking to to Fosse, how close was Joe Gideon and Roy Scheider to Bob Fosse? <laughs> Probably very. <laughs> and not just physically. Bob wrote the character to be he, he, Bob knew show business. And he had a very warped view of it. He says it in the movie, you know, I love show business, I hate show business. And he had that kind of a thing because he worked since the age of 13 in vaudeville. He he knew what he wrote about. But after he did, uh, he won the Academy Award and the uh, Emmy and the, no, the Tony. Yeah. Uh, that year that Eliza with a Z, he won a Tony and he, Oh, he got an Emmy for Eliza with a Z. He got a Tony for Pippin and the Academy Award for Cabaret, which is not a bad triple header. And he could have done any movie he wanted. And what he wanted to do was Lenny from the play. And very, um, it was kind of perverse of him to want to do that. It was a low budget movie and a lot of grief because he, of course, went over budget and they were cutting scenes and before they were shot so it was a that was a very tense situation he i think he was tremendously relieved to come into the cutting room where he didn't have to go on the set and fight with the producers every day you know roy himself roy's an actor but bob the character i think bob based a lot on his life he was a remarkably charming man i don't know how his life would have gone in this Me Too era. But, no, seriously, I've thought about it. But I do know that when I was doing Lenny, he invited my wife and I to a party he was giving in his uh, house in on Long Island, which is the first time I met Chayefsky, and, um, who cheated at croquet, by the way. But it was a wonderful party. It was really a party for the cast of Pippin. There were a vast number of beautiful women there and men and, you know, dancers and all, all various people. And at one point, well, a lot of great things happened that night. But at one point, my wife, uh, Bob came over and asked to dance with my wife, who was an attractive woman, but hardly a Fosse dancer. When we were going back home that evening, she said to me, it was really remarkable to dance with him because... When I was dancing with him, I felt I was the only other person in the room. He had a concentration about him. He would sit with you and talk and over a cup of coffee or something, and you'd say something, and he did this with actors a lot. You'd say something, and much later, he would use that to get a performance out of somebody. He would use some personal information. He basically did it with me, I think, uh, on, in the story I told about having a kid. He probably wanted to break the tension as much as I did. But at that point, I just wanted to do something. He was intense, but he was charming. And he was a seducer. But he seduced everybody that way, men, women. It's a good thing. I don't know. I mean, if I were working with him now and we were all, you know, 40 years ago and and People started accusing him. I don't think, I don't think he ever, you know, Bob paid all his debts. There's a woman we cut out of, um, all that jazz. No fault of hers. It just didn't fit at some point. There were a lot of, a lot of people got cut out. 
But he then cast this particular woman, he cast her in uh, Star 80. One of the chorus dancers says that, you know, I, I did fuck him and he didn't cast me either. He, he, he didn't, you know, he, it, it was not a transactional relationship. You either liked Bob or you didn't. And if you didn't like him, you didn't sleep with him. He didn't hold anything against you as far as I know. But um, I know I know there were actresses he wanted to sleep with and wouldn't. They wouldn't sleep with him, thinking it was a bad career move or other things. He was a guy. He was a guy with particularly heavy, you know, sexual desires. And then he must have been a very good lover. I have no idea myself. But I also I hated that show that was on the Fosse Verdon show. And most of us who worked with Bob didn't like it either, to say the least. One of the most remarkable sequences to me in all that jazz is those breaks that you do with the classical music where, it, you know, it's showtime folks. And I was curious, how did you approach those to make them each so different and to just move the story along so well? Bob shot those with, I suspect, an idea in mind. I mean, he didn't do anything casually. So, you know, when it starts off, uh, when when Roy turns around, uh, he's got the cigarette in his mouth in the shower, and it's a bit of a laugh. As those things progress, the image, particularly the ones from behind of Roy, you know, with the black shirt and everything, by the end of it, he's looking, his arms are out, I think, he's coughing. I think the last one might have been after he drops his daughter off. It's been a while. But after his daughter leaves him after the dance uh, sequence in the studio, and he's coughing really badly. And uh, I think that's when we went to the one where his, 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 he's shot from behind at a low angle. He looks almost like a, a crow or some kind of carrion bird. The idea was that basically the sequences were approximately the same length, but we wanted them to be um, more tougher as we progressed, harder more visually striking. So some of the shots were the same, but the ones of him were different. Bob also had an amazing ability to get a camera into a room with mirrors on it, and you never saw the camera. I don't know how he did that. If you think about the movie, there's so much mirrors in it, so many mirrors. As was, you know, Cabaret had all of those distorting mirrors and things. Um, he liked mirrors, <laughs> no question. Star 80 was... I mean, I can see the similarities between what he had done before and with Star 80, but it just always felt like such a different film. When we were finishing jazz, I was doing something in my cutting room, and Bob came in one day, and he said, I just found the next film I want to do. And he gave me the article from The Village Voice about Dorothy Stratton. I had read the article in The Village Voice, which was something we used to read with some regularity in New York. And when I looked at it, I said, well, boy, this is an unpleasant story. But again, it deals with show business. It deals with manipulating women. I thought it was very much the kind of film that Bob would want to do. That's an interesting film because everybody did such great work on it. The film was basically unwatchable without it was just so good and we were all shocked at how vicious the reviews were i was doing a film shortly after that 
in uh, on location, and the producer of the film, whom I had met fleetingly, saw me in a coffee house at a breakfast place and knocked on the window and asked if he could join me, and he did. And we were talking for a while. He said, you seem like a nice guy. How could you work in such a vile movie? I was stunned. And I know what he means. And in retrospect, well, you know, people in California hated the movie. And Bob did not much like Los Angeles in general. He spent a lot of time here as a young choreographer and a young dancer. But I I don't know. And when when he said vile, I, I understood what he meant. But I was also shocked because I felt that the artistry of it pretty much pulled it off. Bob got very depressed after that. He, he didn't think the reviews would be anything like what they were. He had bought a house by this time out in the uh, on the island where he'd been renting for years, and he had built a dance studio in the garage, I guess. He just disappeared for a while. And then much to my surprise one day, he showed up in the room next to me. He was helping out his friend Herb Gardner, trying to make... Um, I think it was the goodbye people trying to make it um, a better movie because <laughs> Herb, Herb was a guy who would not give up things easily. And a good friend of mine was editing the movie and he was desperate. And Bob showed up and spent, he came in and spent a oh, couple of weeks doing uh, changes with, uh, with Herb. And, you know, I mean, he, he was very, his friends, he was very close to his friends, very tight. You mentioned uh, giving a lecture at a class, and I was curious, what else are you up to these days? I'm mostly retired. I am retired, but I'm the president of the Editors Guild out here. Um, well, it's a nationwide guild of about 8,300 members, and we're, like everybody else, um, trying to get some health standards so we can send everybody back to work, not only us, but more importantly at this point, the crews, because if they don't shoot stuff, editors are not going to have much to work on. So between my business agent and myself, we spend a lot of time in Zoom meetings and mostly her, you know, trying to educate the producers and the medical people, the professionals who've been asked to help us out, both sides, the studios and the uh, crews. And, you know, film crews, they work in very close quarters. People say, well, you guys don't have a problem, you editors, you work alone. That's not really true. There are a lot of people who come through a cutting room. And it's not right to have the editor say, well, you can't bring in your entourage. There should be a nice sign that says no entourage, if you know what I mean. I, I'm, being, I'm simplifying it, but we, we work with a lot of people all the time, in and out, assistants, post-production people, assist, uh, apprentices, and Producers and directors, so they're always coming in and out, optical people, CGIs. So we have issues. And we've been working, editors have been working from home uh, since they closed down the studios. But that pipeline is drying up, of course. And there are many questions with working from home. You know, who pays for the equipment? Are you getting a decent rental for it? Is your electricity sufficient to run the machinery? And on and on and on. And is your Wi-Fi good enough? So all of this is, is stuff grist for the mill, and it's all to be discussed, and we're still discussing it, taking a really long time. But that's what I do. The only person I really want to work for anymore is Nick Cassavetes, but I'm not that interested, simply because it's just, I like the idea of not working. I've always been good at that. And Nick has asked me for years now to do his next movie, but unfortunately, the last one was, I think, six, seven years ago. 
his projects keep falling through. Uh, so now, you know, I'm, I'm really liking being unemployed. Why don't you try it? Well, Mr. Heim, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Welcome back to the show, Keith Gordon. Keith, if you could, please tell me, what do you remember about working on All That Jazz? The thing with All That Jazz now is you're talking about so many years that obviously my memories are not as rich and bountiful. And I wasn't on it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, but there were some very memorable things about it. I mean, it definitely, it was a very intense experience. I was a huge Bob Fosse fan at the point I got the job. It was trippy to get the job because I'm not a dancer and a hefty chunk of what the part is doing is dancing. And I was very honest when I went in and auditioned and, you know, he said, you know, what's your dance experience? And I was like zero. And I said, to be honest, I, I, I'm one of those people who falls down when I walk. So, and he was very sweet and was like, ah, don't worry about it. Don't, you know, if I, if we, if we do this, I'll make it work. And, you know, it, that was where I kind of experienced some of his genius sort of firsthand was, you know, getting me to do these couple little quasi bit of a step that he would use for very short cuts and intercutting me with a double. And, you know, it looking very seamless and very flawless, which was uh, somebody's interested in filmmaking. It was fascinating to me because, you know, I, I'm doing a couple of those little moves and I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And he actually made it look like I did between, you know, what between doubling me and shooting me in tiny pieces. And so that was that was very cool. And then being there for the whole end sequence was really cool because I didn't really have anything to do much as an actor. So I just kind of got to hang out with with a bunch of wonderful actors and watch this amazing sequence be shot. So it was pretty exciting. I, I, I you know, I, unlike De Palma, Fosse wasn't somebody who wanted to sit around and chat a lot. I mean, you know, De Palma was much more like a, a teacher personality. So being on De Palma sets was much more kind of, I, I would, I felt much more comfortable bugging him and saying, so what lens are you using? And why are you putting this in? Fosse never had that vibe. He was definitely like, not chattery and was focused on what he was doing. So I just tried to try to quietly sit and watch, but that was pretty thrilling. That part of it was really, really interesting. And then I also got a taste of the, the kind of darker side of, of Fosse, which, you know, he was sort of famous for, which was his manipulative side, um, which I didn't know so much about then. Um, but I've heard since then many, many stories where, cause like I was doing the scene where, you know, I was being, you know, like molested by the three, these three strippers. And it was very intense. I was like, you know, 17 years old or whatever. And if I wasn't a virgin, I was close. I mean, I was not somebody who was like super comfortable with three naked women, you know, grabbing me and rubbing my crotch. And it was like, it was, you know, a little, I mean, it was sort of really interesting and it was, but it wasn't like an erotic experience. And so we're shooting it and Fosse comes over and he kind of whispers in my ears and he says, listen, it would be really great if you could get hard and walked away. And I was like, what? And I was like so freaked out and felt like this failure. And I was, you know, and later on I had people say, yeah, that's the kind of stuff he would do. He wanted you to be freaked out. That was sort of an interesting experience. And, and, you know, uh, kind of apparently part of often part of his work way, you know, the ways of dealing with people is that he would play mental games and stuff to get people into whatever state he felt they needed to be in. So that was sort of a <laughs> interesting, an interesting you know touch of and and 
I, I'm sure it was effective, but it was also a little bit fucked up. Not, you know, I mean, I, I, I went on to be fine. I it didn't, didn't cause any deep lifelong scarring, but you know, I heard some stories about stuff where it really kind of crossed the line in terms of stuff like that, that he would do with people. So, you know, so that was sort of the other side of it that I also got to experience. But the other thing I remember being very interesting was that he directed at least me. And again, I have no idea that I, I, if he was like this with other actors or older actors or whatever, but it was like being directed by a choreographer, even in the acting scenes. He was very, very specific about my body and body language and not very specific about the emotions of the scene or line readings or, you know, he was sort of fine with me playing the scene however I wanted, but he was very like, okay, on this word, I want you to put your two fingers on the top of the hat and then hold them there for two beats and then tap it twice. It was very interesting. So it was very like dance stuff, but he would never say, oh, could you be more shy or could you be, you know, could you make it more internal or more external? Or he almost, I don't remember almost any directions like that. It was all about, oh, maybe cross your legs like three words later. And so it was kind of fascinating because it was like it was I was literally doing this dance physically that he was completely creating. And then I could act it sort of how I wanted, but I had to get those dance steps right, which was pretty interesting. And I probably would have hated it if it wasn't somebody that I had a huge admiration for. But given that I thought he was a genius and given that, you know, people in his movies were always great, I was like, sure, whatever you wanted is fine. Um, you know, but if a director I didn't have that that sense of admiration for had been that hyper specific physically, I think I probably would have felt a little bit, you know, overwhelmed and locked in and, and probably would have been more likely to say, hey, wait a minute, this is getting crazy. But, you know, it was Bob Bossy. So it was like, dude, you know, you want me to stand on my head? I'll stand on my head. Sure. Whatever. So those were, I guess, the sort of the biggest memories that I that I, you know, I was thinking about it, knowing I was going to talk to you. And those are the things that I re- remember most. But feel free to ask other questions because those are just the ones that came back up when I was looking back at it. You're an actor who is playing a dancer as opposed to him hiring a dancer and having them act. And I'm curious, what do you think it was about you or your audition that really caught his eye and, and had him cast you in that role? You never know because it wasn't like he he, he didn't he didn't explain it to me. And I think he was sort of surprised that he cast me. Um Although even when I just did the audition, I mean, he was saying, don't worry about the dancing. We'll make that. I mean, he kind of was sort of telling me I had the job when I auditioned. All I can imagine is that uh, he just, there was just some quality in my quality that he saw that he felt, first of all, would be a good match for Roy, which obviously was a key thing with that part, you know, whether it was physicality or whatever, in some way he felt like that would make sense, that there was something about my vulnerability and age and I mean, I was very young, you know, and, and I do know that when I went into audition, I think the, the other people I saw there were like older than I was. So maybe the fact that I really was like 17 and not like 23 playing young might have appealed to him. Through most of my years as an actor, very rarely would somebody say, well, here's why I hired you. You know, so you don't, as an actor, it's an odd thing. You don't really know what it is. You, you know, you're happy that you got the job, but but very, very rarely do you have a sense of, oh, this is what it was that convinced them, which is funny. I wonder, I'm probably people who have worked for me as an actor felt the same thing. I'm thinking about people I've hired. And yeah, I don't often tell actors, oh, I hired you because you had this. It seems to only come up if there's something that I want them not to lose. Or And I had that same thing with that, with, with, you know, I might have a director say, you know, when you auditioned, I fell in love with this quality. So just be careful not to lose that element. 
But short of that, it's funny. Most, I think probably most actors most of the time have no idea why they got a job. That final scene that you were there for, I mean, you do get a close-up, though it's a little tough to tell that it's you. I mean, is it? are we supposed to know, like, this is young Joe seeing old Joe as he's about to go? I agree. I've had other people say, you know, I sort of thought that was you, but I wasn't sure. So clearly, in the end, the effect was a little confusing or not hyper clear. You're not the only person who's ever said that by a long shot. Whether that was Fosse's intention, I have no idea. I mean... Uh, you know, again, that was not something he spoke to. So whether he liked that it was ambiguous, um, I'm certainly it's a really quick shot. So it's not like your brain has a lot of time to reset and you haven't seen me at that point for an hour of the film. So it's not surprising that it would be confusing. It seems like, but I mean, I'd love to know that you know, it's eight trillion things. I'd love to know what was in their heads and, you know, uh, you know, I, he and Alan Heim and when they were working on stuff and, I think it's possible that he liked the idea that it was sort of subliminal, and if people got it, they got it, and if they didn't, they didn't. But I think that more, because I feel like that's how a lot of the film seems to work to me, that a lot of things are kind of like sort of there, but they're not very literally spelled out. you know. And, and it's one of those movies, and one of the things I love, I love about it as a film goer is I love movies where every time you see it, you notice something new, and I feel like that's definitely one of those movies. It may well have been sort of intentionally like, eh, you know, let's, let's not, let's not sit on this shot. Did you call upon any of those experiences working for Fosse when you did the singing detective? Yes, because I see myself as about his level of genius when it comes to dancing and choreography. I, I <laughs> wow. No <laughs> ego whatsoever. It was, <laughs> no, I mean, obviously I, of course I was affected by it, but it was even, I was more affected by the fact that I was a huge admirer, even than the fact that I had worked on the movie. It wasn't like, it wasn't like there was something I saw on the set that I directly applied to, to singing detective for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, uh, the difference between, you know, a very large budgeted studio film and a little tiny weird art movie where, Part of the point that even Dennis Potter talked to is that the numbers shouldn't be too slick and they should be kind of messy and that they're, uh, they're somebody's fantasy of being in a musical. They're not a musical. And, you know, so there was a lot of things that were so different inherently in it so that, I, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't possible to sort of even try to do that, nor would it have, I think, been appropriate kind of amazing choreography and stuff that he did. That said, clearly... I mean, I loved his stuff. And when I talked to the choreographers, we talked about Fosse and we talked about, you know, some of the hospital numbers, you know, and, and the surrealness of the dancing. And we even used uh, Sandra Bergman, who was the lead in the takeoff with us number. She's actually in Sing the Detective in, in the number where in the uh, on the hop number where there it's kind of a medical fantasy. You know, she, you only see her briefly, but it's it's there was definitely a little homage thing going on there, um, which was really fun. And she was super sweet. And, you know, we had her like, you know, a very Fosse-ish sort of a merry widow sort of lingerie thing with a hypodermic and, a, uh, and she still looked amazing. I mean, it was like, you know, many years later, but she was still like an incredible shape and a wonderful dancer. So that was fun. And that was a little that was that was a little nod to Fosse. Not that I expected anybody in the world to ever notice it. It was just that the choreographers happened to know her. And it was actually their idea. I can't take credit for it. They said, well, what would you think of 
uh, of using her for this. I was like, if she would want to do it, I'd be so honored and thrilled. And, and it was really sort of fun. And she was, she was so nice. I mean, it was only like a, she was only there for like a day, but she was just great. In fact, my, my overall, I mean, I will say my, my respect for dancers directing a film that had musical numbers grew insanely. I mean, you couldn't tell it so much around Fosse because Fosse was so much the center of attention on the set. So I didn't think about the dancers as much, but doing a film where you're working with dancers, the discipline and the humor and the fact that they were able to do take after take after take of these really physically demanding things where they're picking each other up and tossing themselves in the air. And, and like, I would be like, are you guys okay? Can you keep doing this? And they're like, Oh, this is what we do. And I thought they were like the most amazing people. And they seemed to all be in incredibly good moods all the time. And, you know, and we were this little low budget film and nobody's getting paid that much money. And they were just like the best. I was just, you know, I, I understand why people want to work with dancers because it's such a people who do that, I think, bring a, a purity of passion to it. Uh, you know, very few dancers become famous for being dancers. Most of them just do their work and yet they they bring everything to it. And so that was something I probably missed a little bit even when I was doing all that jazz, so I was busy acting and I wasn't thinking about it. And again, that world was so around Fosse that I wasn't stopping and thinking about what the dancers were doing. But when I got to be in that position with dancers, I was like, wow, okay, you guys are the best. That was a cool thing to finally come to realize uh, later in life, but, but it was a nice thing to, and now whenever I see like a musical or whatever, I'm just like, yeah, okay, it's all amazing to me. And they had to do this 80 times and, you know, they had to learn this all, and and it's it's kind of an amazing thing. How close was Roy Scheider to Bob Fosse? Do you think, as far as the performance? I thought Roy did an amazing job of getting what seemed to be Fosse's essence as a presence. I, I didn't know either of them super well, even though I'd done Jaws two with Roy. It wasn't like we had a lot of stuff together, and but Roy was very friendly and approachable, and we chatted a certain amount and. His first of all, the body language stuff was incredible, and I don't know if Fosse pushed him to do that or that was what he chose to do because I wasn't around for those conversations. But watching them standing together, like on the set, like Roy just was Bob in terms of body. I mean, in terms of the way he walked, the way he moved, the way he held a cigarette, it was freaky. I mean, I, you know, when the two of them were near each other, it was like because they don't really look that much alike. Their essence was, and that was, I thought, a, a remarkable thing that Roy pulled off because, again, Roy is not primarily a dancer. I think he had some dance training, but I don't think it was what he'd done much in his career. And yet he really moved like Fosse. And if you watch him in the film, the way he walks, the way he holds himself, the way, you know, it was as if he was somebody who'd been working with his body primarily his whole life. So that was really remarkable uh, to me. And I don't know how that evolved. I don't know what the conversations were as they were working on the character. And then Fosse also had his weird thing where he was insisting that the character wasn't him, which was a little bizarre. He was very serious about it. He was like, very like, it's not me. It's not me. And it's like, okay. <laughs> but then clearly it was him and he was dressing, you know, Roy like him. So it was a little bit schizophrenic on that level, you know? And, and I thought at first that when I'd heard some of that, I thought, Oh, well, he's just saying that because, he wanted to have some freedom to not have to, but like, even when I talked to him about it, you know, and about playing the young him, he was like, well, it's not me. 
He's like, I mean, this happened to me, but this, this isn't me. It was very strange and, and interesting. And again, I wish I wished I had been older and more comfortable engaging him in even deeper, longer conversations about that stuff. I will say that in terms of him and Roy, when I was around for that last Bye Bye Life number, there was a real ease and flow that they had with each other. I mean, it wasn't very jokey. It wasn't like a fun, light set because that just didn't seem to be the energy that Fosse put off. He was very focused, very intense. Not not mean or angry. I don't think I ever heard him yell. Or, but he's not like somebody who's like hanging out and like quipping and doing. Do, you know, he's kind of really focused. And so was Roy. Their conversation seemed very flowing. There was very little conflict. There was very little. I mean, they sort of seemed to really have what they were doing down. And he would sort of say just one or two little things to Roy, and you'd see Roy really make an interesting adjustment coming out of that, or adjust how he was doing a dance move. And but it was very. It was very efficient and very focused, and it was a it was like a quiet set, you know. It was like it was the, there was that kind of intensity to it. It was it wasn't like a lot like it wasn't like between takes that everybody started talking a ton, you know. Everybody was kind of like really just there, and 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 Fosse I think had that kind of energy. I think he felt like the maestro was there, and people kind of paid attention. It wasn't a lot of wasn't a lot of people just drifting away. I was talking to Alan Heim last night, and he was just saying that he got into trouble quite a few times because he would say, when you do this, and he meant the Roy Scheider character, he meant Joe Gideon, and Fosse was getting really angry at him about that. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, so it obviously was really deep for him. Clearly was him. I mean, everything about it and, and everything. And if he really wanted to send that message, he could have dressed Roy different. He could have not had Roy wear the hair and beard thing exactly the way he did. It's, it's a weird thing that he he did everything he could to underline the connection and then would get really pissy about it and say, there's no connection. And I don't, yeah, Alan Heim obviously be a great source because they, they, you know, I'm sure they worked so closely and so intensely for so long that, you know, probably more than anybody, he'd, he'd really have be able to talk about what that process was because so much of Fosse's films are about editing for me. I mean, there's some of the best edited movies I can think of. And I think Alan did an incredible job. And clearly that was a real process in the film. So, you know, as much as it was a great script, when you saw the final movie, you saw how much of it they found in the way they constructed it. So I'm sure that, you know, Alan would be, I'm, you know, I'm glad you got to him because I'd actually, I look forward to hearing what he had to say because really probably no other person was as important to that movie other than Fosse himself, I think. I know, obviously, that movies aren't shot chronologically, but how long of a, a a time was there between when you're doing Young Joe and when you're back there at the end? And was that in that order? It was in that order. I don't think they were going strictly chronologically, but they did. I do think the Bye Bye Life number was during near the end, if not the end of the shooting schedule. Um, whether that was an artistic choice because they wanted to build to it or just a happenstance of production, I don't know. But it definitely was, I think the, the, the nightclub part of it where I was with the strippers was early in the schedule and the other was late in the schedule. So there was a pretty big gap. There was a couple of months, I think, between doing the two. Um, and I actually had, it wasn't in the script that young Joe was in that audience. So I actually thought I was done. Uh, that was actually a wonderful surprise when I got this call saying, do you want to come out? And I think they said it was like for a day to be in the audience. And I was like, well, sure, of course. And then I was there like two weeks, which was wonderful because it was, you know, it was Fosse and it was this incredible musical number. And 
And, you know, I just got to sit there and watch and hang out with, you know, Lithgow and, and all the actors in the show. That was a wonderful bonus prize that I didn't expect and didn't see coming. Keith, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for these stories about all that jazz. I really appreciate this. Well, I hope it's helpful. I'll look forward to seeing, you know, or hearing a piece when it's all done. And yeah, it's just always great. It's just always great to hear from you. And it's always fun to talk to somebody else who loves movies so much. So, you know, I'm happy to do it. did you even grow up at? I was born in Weirton, West Virginia and grew up in Pittsburgh. And I started wanting to get out of Pittsburgh around the time I was nine. Finally managed to when I was 16. I kept imagining ways to uh, run away or get away. Finally, I managed to finish high school and persuade my parents to let me audition for Juilliard as a dancer because I wanted to be a ballet dancer. That was my big goal. And it was going to be a um, preliminary audition like for the next year. But as I got all my classes done, I, I said, well, great, let me change this to a a real audition. And they went, oh, okay. <laughs> and then when I got in as a dancer, they went, oh, she got in. I guess she has to go. So I got an apartment in New York. Julia didn't have dorms at 16. I didn't like Julia because they wanted me to be a modern dancer. I want to be a ballet dancer. So I studied ballet on the side of some American ballet theater and all the different kinds of dance you can do in New York City. And I turned 21 and realized that I was um, too old. I was over the hill. My career was over. I wasn't in a major ballet company. Um, I hadn't done anything with my life. It was all over for me. And a wonderful voice teacher that someone had, you know, forced me to take lessons from said, okay, you're, you've got to get into a profession where you're younger. Um, go by backstage and circle all of the auditions that you're right for, you know, as a, as a um, chorus dancer. And before you come back next week, I want you to go to all of them or don't come back. Something like that. Yeah. Some tough love thing. <laughs> so I went, all right. And I think the first audition I went to was a bus and truck tour of Seesaw directed by Tommy Toon. And I got in. I went, oh, that's where I'm supposed to be, I guess. And I was, uh, I did chorus stuff for a while and um, got into chorus line, which was like the big casino for dancers and actors and uh, dance, dancers slash actors in New York. So I got into the, the New York company. I had um, auditioned previously and, and gotten cut, but, you know, after a while of, of being on the road and then um, I think I got into Pal Joey on, on Broadway, auditioned again and, and they called me up and they said, well, we would like you to understudy for Sheila. That's the part I was trying out for the, you know, tall, gorgeous, can the adult smoke uh, Kelly Bishop role. And, I, and they said, but we'd like you to go to England. And I went, no. And I hung up and I went, oh, my God, what did I do? 
<laughs> called back and I said, okay, well, we would like you to um, understudy Sheila in the New York company. And I went, yes. <laughs> yes, at last. <laughs> yes, okay, I can do that. So I was learning Sheila and um, being myself, which is sort of a, you know, walking into walls type person. And um, the woman who was doing Christine, I really, you know, the married couple, I really couldn't sing. She wanted to leave Cookie Vasquez and she wanted to go back to Los Angeles where she was from. And they said, would you like to try out for a place on the line? And I went, oh, yeah. And I did that. And they went, okay, you're in. And I said, but... I still want to understudy Sheila. <laughs> I went, all right. So I played uh, Christine and understudied Sheila when Sheila was gone for about mm, two and a half years. And then in the middle of that, um, all that jazz came up. So a chorus line is how I got an agent in New York, finally. I'd been talking to this agent and... Uh, when I got in to chorus line, I said, hey, would you negotiate my contract for me? And she went, yeah, and take 10% for every week? Yes. <laughs> no worries. She sent me up actually for Chicago. I'd always wanted to be a Fosse dancer. That was like, the, that was my big dream on Broadway. And I'd auditioned for Pippin and kind of almost gotten in. And they said, well, you're just not quite sharp enough. And then Chicago, and then I'd gotten cut at the end of that after I sang. And God, I love all of Fosse's choreography and direction and, you know, stuff. So um, Chicago was going on a national tour, and I got an audition for Roxy. And um, got down to me and, and Pennyworth. We both went into the audition, and we worked with Bob directly on... Roxy's monologue and oh my god I just fell in love with working with him I had this like physical desire to work with him as a director and be directed by him it was it was just you know I'd never had that kind of experience before working with someone you know just the the stuff that he did with working with me with the monologue so when she got it I was devastated but I thought well at least he knows who I am. I, you know, was in the studio with him for half an hour, and he saw me act and sing and dance, so he knows me. Well, he didn't remember me. He was lucky if he remembered all of the women that he slept with, which he probably didn't. He's like this pan god of New York theater. He just ran around, you know, sleeping with girls here and there, and everybody kind of loved him and. You know, worshipped him, pan god, basically, absolutely in rut all the time, and and really, really, really talented. So, this wonderful thing, I think, the wonderful thing about New York is, if you're very talented, it doesn't matter. You can get away with whatever you want to get away with. I mean, not so much now. I guess Me Too is 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 a good thing, really overdue. But at least at that time in the seventies when it was a free-for-all anyway. Um, you know, if you were a genius talent, that was enough. So there he was, and I was like, okay, well, he knows me, and, and you know, I'm, I'm in. And I asked my uh, agent to submit me for all that jazz, and she did, and, and he didn't call me in. So I went, oh, all right. He, you know, I knew 
I've trusted him to know what he wanted in a role. So I'm like, okay, I'm not right. And then a friend of mine who had been in a chorus line, Joe Sparrows, she was the, the youngest member of the, of the line, I think she was 17 or 18, um, said, hey, I'm going to go to the open call for dancers uh, across the street at the Palace Theater. Can I use your dressing room? She had left the show and she said, can I, can I use your dressing room to get ready? And I went, oh, yeah, because we were at the Schubert. And she said, you should come. Uh, no, I don't want to be in the chorus. I don't want to be a dancer. I'm acting now. And she said, yeah, but, you know, and then she told me the story about, you know, Dustin Hoffman going to audition for Mike Nichols for some Broadway show. And it was a singing part and he didn't sing, but he went anyway. And then Mike Nichols discovered him and put him in the graduate and, you know, started his whole career. She said, you should come. Uh, all right. So... <laughs> And then at the end, it, it, all the chorus, all the auditions after being in a chorus line were so surreal because chorus line was all about auditioning and then, you know, standing on a line and being chosen. So there I was, I auditioned, I got through the dance, which was amazing to me because I was like, oh, I'm a fussy dancer now. <laughs> so standing on the line and unbeknownst to me, Vicky Stein, um, Bob's dear secretary, uh, said to him, that's Deborah Geffner. And he went, who? <laughs> she told me later. <laughs> and she said, we had her in for Roxy. She's very good. You liked her. And he went, oh. So I stayed as, you know, one of the, I was, I was kept as a, uh, as a chorus person, you know, so one of the, one of the, we were rehearsing in the, you know, in the big rehearsal room and all those scenes. And then they called me back to say, would you audition for this part that I had, you know, been up for and not auditioned for. And he had called in Sandal Bergman and Vicki Fredericks, who were people he knew and who had been, I think they, they were in, in dancing already. And Bob Fosse had this, this terrific, um, Hatred, I would say, for Michael Bennett. <laughs> Rivalry. He just couldn't stand that, you know, Michael Bennett uh, got all of these awards for Chorus Line. He just hated that. You know, even in dancing, they, the, you know, the first people come out and they say, this is a show where we don't talk about dancing. We just dance. His uh, response to, it was a direct response to Chorus Line. So he, he just hated Michael. So, you know, Sandal, he had gotten Sandal and Vicky from a chorus line and they'd gone into dance and they, they'd also been in uh, Pippin and, you know, they were, they were Fosse chorus dancers from way back. So I was up against them. I didn't know that. I went to read for him and he said, you're very good. But he said, you know, I'm going to call you back for a screen test. But he said, you know, wear something form fitted because I was wearing the, you know, it was the 80s and we were wearing like these blousey things. So I was in the height of fashion. And he said, my girlfriend, Jessica Lang, wears these things too. She's this beautiful figure. I, you know, I want to be able to see your figure in the in the screen test. So I went crazy, you know, trying to figure something out. And I got a, um, a bathrobe and I had it tailored. And, um, and then I know, I was just like, what do I wear that's warm fitting? 
because it was a scene. It was a, a an audition scene. I I got it. Um, Vicky Stein again got got me my screen test. She was so sweet and you know got it for me, and so I have it up on my website. But I ended up wearing this flannel shirt of my father's, you know, and just underwear. And and it was a scene in bed talking to Joey when he goes into the hospital. And the conceit of this of this scene is that, you know, I'm I'm calling him in the hospital and telling him all the things that went on that you actually see in the movies. Everybody thought the book reading was terrific. I never saw such enthusiasm. Hold on a second. Wait a second, John. Did Audrey tell you what happened after lunch? After you left? It was awful, like a wave. People just like staring like zombies. Like first Jonesy made this speech saying how the show might have to be postponed probably for about four months. Uh, Oh, but he was like real sweet about it. Like telling the kids how management would try to find us temporary jobs. Even like lend us money. And then Audrey made this cute, really cute speech, like real up, you know, saying like how you were making jokes like in the hospital. Oh, and then Paul Dan jumped up and said he had like a great idea for a new number called Hospital Hawk. It was a really nice phone scene. I was going to do this screen test. Then he postponed it because Richard Dreyfuss left the movie over artistic differences. Richard Dreyfuss had just won the the uh, Oscar for the Goodbye Girl. And so he was an actor and he started rehearsing with Bob and Bob was rehearsing him the way he rehearsed everyone, which was choreographing you down to the last detail. He really was a control freak. But the thing was, he was so good that if you followed everything he said, he would tell you what to do with your finger, you know, tap your finger on the window and these little things, these little details were so well observed that if you just followed it, if you just did it and made it you know, made it honest and real, I mean, you couldn't go wrong. He was better than almost everyone else that he was working with. If you go to a gathering of people who have worked with Bob, the one thing they will say is he made everyone look better than they were. And that's Giuseppe Rotuno, his cinematographer. You know, who was Fellini's cinematographer will say that his AD, his people who did the music, the costume designer, everything he touched, he made the people look better than they were, really better than they were, because he just cared so much. Anyway, this really didn't sit well with Richard Dreyfus. He knew how to act, and that's not how you direct an actor. So he quit. He was on the line because he had broken his contract. You know, he was on the line for tens of thousands of dollars a day. He called up, Roy Scheider told me this story later. He called up Roy and said, okay, um, I've done it. <laughs> can you can you bail me out? Um, will you, you know, will you audition and take this job uh, if, if you're offered, you know, because I know you'd be good in it. And Roy was actually a much better choice for it because he had this athletic physique and and he was willing to work with Bob and very easy person to work with. Very, very lovely man, very nice. And, you know, the kind of man that takes steps two, three at a time. And all the policemen around New York loved him because of the French connection. And they go, hey, Roy. They, they figured he was one of them. And 
no, just a guy. He's just a real nice guy. Easy to talk to. So he took it. So in the meantime, that's what delayed my screen test for a couple of weeks. Naturally, I got sick and got bronchitis. And <laughs> just, I mean, the nerves, you know, I was all ready to do this. And then and I had the scene all memorized and, you know, ready to go. And then, okay, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. I got really sick, couldn't breathe. And I did it once, and he said, "Okay, can you can you do it faster?" And I was like, "Yes, I can." I thought to myself, "Yes, if I can breathe." And I was working with Bob. And you can hear his voice on the on the screen desk. And I did it through just you know as quickly as I could. And he said, "Okay, that was very good. That was much better." And then the next thing I heard was from Vicky again, Vicky Stein. He loves you, but he wants to see you again. He wants to see if you can do the dancing. And I was like, okay, it was like a, a woman trying on a dress for an important occasion. And I was the dress. The dress can't have feelings. It's not like, oh my God, he doesn't like me. It's just like, no, he has to try me out again and see if he wants the blue or the green. See if it really fits. See if this is the right one. Strikes the right tone. So I went in and I did his, his combination. It's the first combination that you see in um, uh, in all that jazz. It's a, when when they're doing the on Broadway scene, and it's a like a step step and to the side and click and step step to the side and click and you know has a turn in it, and um, you turn turn and you go into a lunge and click and cock your head. I did that, did it really well, and I had on a, a strappy leotard with straps, you know, skimpy because everyone will tell you, every one of Bob's dancers will tell you. You know, when they heard he was coming to rehearsal, the leg warmers would come off, the pants would come off, they would hike their leotards up, you know, up above their, their butts, you know, they'd pin it down in the front because he loved seeing beautiful women and he wanted to see everything full out. You know, he hated stuff covering your body. So I had an inkling of this. So I was wearing this heels, tights, and the skimpy leotard. So when I did this final lunge and then cocked my head to the side, my boobs slipped out. And I went, oops. So I never, I will never know if that got me the job or not. So he said, okay, uh, you're a good dancer. And he said, could you do this scene? And it was the scene from the movie where uh, Victoria breaks down and cries. You know, not a good dancer, you know. And I read it over and I went, oh my God, she cries at the end? No, I had never cried before on cue. And so I thought, what the heck am I going to do? And I just thought to myself, what if I got all the way through this and then didn't get the part? And that did it. <laughs> right on cue in the middle of the thing, I burst into tears. <laughs> and he was doing the scene with me. And I finished and he said, you cry easily, don't you? And I went, yeah. And then the next thing I heard was that I'd gotten it. But don't mess up your chances by asking for billing because he's going he's gonna to put the billing you know, where he wants it. Don't mess up your chances by asking for extra money because he's going to give you SAG minimum. But also, I was on for the entire, I was hired for the entire shoot of the movie, which was like this amazing six months shoot and went on and on. And I, I don't know if you know the stories about all that jazz, but in the middle, Warner Brothers that sold it to Columbia or Columbia that sold it to Warner Brothers. I want to say it was Columbia sold it to Warner Brothers because I think it ended up coming out as a Warner Brothers picture. 
so in the middle, you know, he was going on and he, he was like, I need more time. I need more time. And the studio wanted to pull the plug and he put it together. I, I don't know the, the details, but I think he put some scenes together and shopped it over to Warner Brothers. And they said, oh, yeah, we'll do this. So they took it over and he was able to finish it the way he wanted. I was devastated when I read the script and I found out that my audition scene was not in the script. <laughs> not in my, my second audition scene, the one where I broke down and, and cried was. But the, the screen test scene, you know, wasn't in it. I, it was like after the rehearsals, when, when Joey goes into the hospital, I felt like when I saw the movie, the, the rough cut of it, the screening, and it's just like, it's just, he's, he's so like his character. Before the screening, he said, well, the color correction isn't in and, you know, the sound isn't right. And <laughs> he just laughed. He was always such like, he was always so down on himself. If you read Sammy's book called Fosse, it was a wonderful book. He did interviews with everyone. It really gets the flavor of how hard he was on himself and how much he just didn't live up to his own high standards, even though in so many ways he did. But his standards were so much higher. Like anyone else, I'm, I'm afraid of failure, although I don't think that's the major thing. And afraid that the ideas that I have I cannot, I don't have the talent to execute. I would like to do better things, better quality things, uh, more important things. And at the same time, there's a fear that I don't have the equipment, the talent, the, the intelligence to bring them off. You still have that fear having proven and overcome that question so many times? Cabaret, Lenny, all that jazz and sweet charity. Myself. I don't know how it works on other people, but uh, <laughs> it's just, yes, I do. You know, like Chapman said, the, all of us are amateurs. None of us live long enough to be anything else but. Back to when I saw the screening of the movie, my parents came up and we, we were all invited to the screening. And I just disappeared after the first half of the movie. I felt like, oh, I became a, a minor character. Uh, as soon as he got into the hospital, everyone else was in the hospital scenes, dancing and everything. And you know, somehow he had this vision of Victoria as soft-hearted and crying, you know, not, not one of the dancers who were partying and, um, you know, celebrating with them. But, it, but I just disappeared. I got so upset. I, you know, came back home and, and uh, just sat on my sink and ate a whole pint of coffee Haagen-Dazs ice cream. It was like it drowned my sorrows because I really thought I had a, a you know, major role in the, in the movie. And seeing it, I was like, no, I don't. But it was a major role. It was, and it was wonderful. And it was, you know, just an, an honor to be in it, an honor to be on set with him. He was always working the hardest of anyone on set. I would watch him and I would see him sitting there. It looked like he was doing nothing for a second. But I mean, in his mind, he was like going four or five steps ahead, you know, and waiting. And, and, and there was a, a tension on that set that I had never experienced after. It was the first movie I ever did. I thought, oh, my God, it, it's always like this. You know, it was like everyone waiting on him and, and uh, waiting for his movies or hurry up and wait for the, the tech to get done. So we're all standing there waiting. And, you know, then we would just hear the Wolfgang Gladys, the first AD, go, OK, come on. How soon are you know, how, how close are we? Because it was just, you know, it was, it was maddening. But he wanted it right. And Giuseppe Rotuno wanted it right. He would, you know, 
focus each light the way he wanted it. And it was beautiful, beautiful film. But the tension, the amount of tension and the amount of, of, of nerves and of wanting to get it right, I've never seen before or since. Any dancer that works with him will also tell you that he wants to see it full out. If he's rehearsing, if he's, you know, riding a shot, riding camera on a shot, he wants to see it full out. Otherwise, he can't figure out how it's going to look. So you're dancing full out, and you're, and then he rides the shot again, and you do it again, full out. And again, you do it full out. And by the time you get to the actual shot, you're just exhausted. You're ready to, you know, ready to drop. But the thing is, it meant so much to him. It, there's a word for it, but, but it meant so much that it, it means so much to you. He, and, he, and that was the kind of effort that he was able to call forth from people. For example, um, you know, in the takeoff with us number where Sandal is up on the scaffolding and everybody's, you know, dancing all around her and she's taken her clothes off. And then he wanted her to just dive into, just fall off the scaffolding into the arms of the guys below. It's like a six foot scaffolding. Well, six foot, it's like a five foot scaffolding platform where she was. And um, he said, okay. And he didn't ask her to try it. He went up there. With his cigarette in his mouth, he said, okay, to the guys, catch me. And they're all like, ah! and he did it. And he said, okay, that. So once he's done it with a cigarette in his mouth, you know, you can't say, oh, that's too dangerous. I just showed you. I just did it for you. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't ask anyone to do anything that he wouldn't do himself either. I mean, he was that kind of dancer and person and choreographer, but he did manipulate when Erzabet Foldy and, um, and what's her name? He played Audrey, the wonderful actor. Leland Palmer. They were sitting in the in the back row watching the audition scene, you know, on Broadway. And he goes back. She says, you're supposed to have her this weekend. And he goes, oh, I can't. I'm sorry. Elizabeth, you know, his, his daughter in the film said, oh, that's all right. And he wanted her to cry. So he had someone tell her that he was going to die. You know, but it was for the movie. I guess someone told her that he was fine afterwards. I don't know, but I heard that. And this wonderful scene where I burst into tears, you know, when I'm dancing and he's, you know, lay back, Victoria, lay back, lay back, yelling at me. So we'd been rehearsing, rehearsing. We rehearsed the dance number for about six weeks before we even started filming. You know, the dancers got together and just whipped us into shape. So we, we became this cohesive group and we, were so in shape and we were, you know, when we did the first things that we did were, were those the first things we filmed were those numbers. But by the time we got to the palace theater and did the, the on Broadway audition scene, his dancers actually were in much better shape than the other dancers, you know, so it was, it, that's verisimilitude. And we knew this, we knew the combinations, we knew all the stuff we had, we did the, all of the takeoff with us number. And then we filmed my bit where we're rehearsing and he, he yelled at me and I found him somewhere on, on set on this cavernous stage in New York city. And I said, so Bob, what would you like me to do? How would you like me to be not so good? Or, you know, what, what would you like me to do to not be good? And he looked at me with a cigarette in his mouth. He went, <coughs> what's his, he would, you know, stand and cough and squint one eye and you go, just dance your best.
that'll be bad enough. He didn't say, you know, he didn't add that'll be bad enough. He knew that with the right angles and, you know, he knew he could make anyone look good or look bad. Uh, I didn't, I didn't get that at the time. I know that now. Looking back at it, it, I can see that he'd, like I said, hated Michael Bennett. He hated a chorus line. And I was so proud that I was in a chorus line because, you know, I was there for two years already. And, you know, we came out of the stage door and there would be 24 people lined up asking for our autographs and saying, oh, I loved you the best. Christine was my favorite. You were so funny. You know, would you sign my autograph? And we were Gladway stars. And, you know, I kept asking him, have you seen me? And, you know, did you see me? And he went, no, no, no. After I actually got the part, he invited me out to dinner. There was one time we were at Patsy's, which was an Italian restaurant. And we came in and there was a huge round table. And Michael was out at Michael Bennett. And I was walking in with Bob Fosse feeling really good. He went up to the table and he went right in back of Michael and like you would clap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, Michael, how are you? But instead of just clapping him on the shoulder, he clapped him on the shoulder and like pushed him down. So his face was almost in the plate. He went, hey, Michael, how are you? <laughs> I go, oh, good. And then we walked to our seat. I think it might have been that same dinner where uh, it was because it was after the show Someone came to our table, the two of us were talking about the part, about others, you know, whatever. I don't remember what, but this woman came to the table and she said, oh, I'm so sorry, may I interrupt you? And we both looked up and, you know, here I am with Bob Fosse. And she looked at me and she said, oh, you were so great tonight. May I have your autograph? And she handed me the course line program. I said, oh, thank you so much. And what's your name? Signed it and handed it back to her. And he said, wow, that you were very gracious. It was very gracious of you. I thought, oh, you know, so he can see I'm good. You know, he could, I just wanted him to, to think I was still trying to impress him like you do. We were back to doing this scene and I was standing there and the first lines that you know, that Roy would say, okay, stand on your right foot, point your left toe, drop that shoulder. That's not too hard, is it? Then Kathy Doby would, would yell, five, six, seven, eight, and we'd go into the dance. Anyway, right before we started it, when we were doing my close-up, he came up to me and he said, cigarette in his, hanging out of his mouth, he said, oh, um, by the way, I did see you in a chorus line and you stank. And he went, okay, <laughs> action. So he was wonderful, but it was what a gift, right? Screws you up, but what a gift artistically. And we we did the crying scene and, and you know, it was really good, I thought. And snot dripped out of my nose and uh my friend Rima, who was one of the dancers, said, Oh my god, my I was my stomach was churning. <laughs> It was such a hard scene to watch. So we finished it, and then someone came up and talked to him, and he goes, and he was like so mad. He goes, okay, we're going to do it again. The boom had dipped into the frame, and we had to do it all over again. If I if I had kept the take with, with the snot dripping out of my nose, I might have been famous like Jane Fonda and Clute. But anyway. Were there many scenes that were shot that weren't used that you were in? No. It was tightly organized by Wolfgang Gladys, mostly. And he still has the shot list 
the the, uh, the day of day, day out of days, what did you call it? He still has that in his house, you know, and he, <laughs> it's amazing. It's like a six month day out of days. It's just incredible. And he said, you know, that he's never been on the shoot that long, except Cabaret, of course, which he also did with him, which is an amazing, amazing movie. Every time I see it, God. And it's interesting, you know, sometimes I watch all that jazz in these screenings, you know, oh, we've got to reconstitute it. And sometimes Roy is really, really great. And sometimes I go, oh, that's kind of fake. But I notice as time goes on, he's been getting better. <laughs> that's a really weird thing to say about a movie. But maybe it's the better quality restoration where you can see the, the nuances of his acting. But he was really good. He was really good. You would go on to work with Fosse again in Star 80. How was that experience? Really interesting. <laughs> I had moved to Los Angeles with my boyfriend, who later became my husband, who later became father of my two kids. Bob called me up just out of the blue, and he said, I'm in Los Angeles, and I have a, a part you know, that I would like you to do. I said, wow, that would be great. Apparently, he was very um, unhappy during Star 80. And personally, this is just my personal opinion, I don't think he understood the story the way he understood Cabaret or All That Jazz or even Lenny, I think. I just don't think he understood a story where a guy would uh, manipulate a woman in that way. I don't think he understood that particular relationship between Eric and um, Mariel. So he said, I, I want you for this scene. And I went, oh, that's great. And then he said, you know, would you like to come over? And I said, oh, I can't. How did I say it? I don't remember it. Uh, he said, I'd love to see you. And I said something like, it was something I can't come over. I can't do that. I'm, you know, I'm not going to. When I got to set, he had put that dialogue it wasn't exactly that dialogue, but he had put that dialogue in our scene. And we were, I was with Gwen in a car, in the car show, and Eric Roberts was, uh, was talking to us. And oh, he gave Gwen the line. She said, I'm not fucking for money. And then he gave me the line, she's not, but I am. And again, he choreographed. He, he said, you know, look out the window when you're saying it, uh, do that with your finger. He curled himself into the car. He was down. I mean, Eric was in the driver's seat. He was in the passenger on the floor on the passenger side, curled inside the seat where he could see everything and direct us so he could be a part of us. You know what I mean? So he wasn't he wasn't the guy outside watching on the video village. He was one of the ones inside. He was one of the creative. He was part of the creative team, you know? There's a subtle difference. And he was willing to just like, you know, squeeze himself into the car and keep his head underneath the dashboard so they couldn't see it, you know, from outside so that he could direct everything minute to minute, second to second. So I was delighted to be, you know, asked to do it. He said, and again, you know, I'm calling you because I don't want to have to deal with agents. But of course, I called my agent, you know, but it was like, this is the money. This is this is what I'm offering. But it was like, yeah, I'll work for you again. Yeah. I'm crazy about you. Anytime. Have you ever worked with anybody like him since then? No. No one to whom it meant so much. It was so essential. 
university. Just get it right. We went to Pace University. Was it Pace? Pace, where we went upstate New York for the you know the final death scene. Bye bye love. You know he he had us all up there, and he looked at the place the way they had it, and he went no, he, and he redesigned it. He wanted it all mylar, so that was his design. So we waited. <laughs> we we hung out for a couple of days while they while they redecorated it all in mylar. Then he had two of the dancers from the chorus doing the the uh, you know the heart, the pulmonary or whatever the you know the the um, what do you call those ventricles of the heart? What what Kathy Dopey Kathy Dopey and Anne Ranking eventually did. So he had them all set up. I won't say who it was, um, but two really good dancers. And they were doing it, and they learned the, the choreography. The costumes were all fitted on them. wasn't satisfied with their dancing. He wasn't satisfied with what they could do. So he had his two best dancers, Kathy Dopey and Anne Ranking, um, do that. And they were they were sewn into those costumes. Once they got in those costumes, they couldn't pee. They had to be unstitched so they could go to the bathroom. And if you look at that choreography, I mean, it is it's unforgiving. It's so hard, and they're so good. They're so controlled. There's not a wobble. There's not a complaint. There's nothing. It's just, it's in service, you know? It's in service to this genius. It's in service to the the vision, and everyone was in service to the vision. And they had to get out of the costumes, get, you know, made up for their parts when he runs around and he says goodbye to everyone. You know, they had to get remade up. And all those living, those living statues, um, Kenny Ott's daughter, one of the producers, she was one of the living statues. And those women were walking around, you know, with silver faces and, and weird wigs. And then, oh, God, there was a, a, a rogues gallery in the men's dressing room of um, John Liskow. What, a, what an incredible guy. Um, John Liskow, David Margulies. Um, who was it? The, the, the producer. I think Anthony, William, William Lemesina, who played Jonesy, Max, Michael Tolan. Uh, you know, they were all in the men's room and they were all just, they were all uh, playing poker and, you know, just, just shooting the shit and having the best time, you know. But we were there for days. They were calling it uh, POPA, Prison of the Performing Arts. And we had gone so long that I was actually back in a chorus line I had gotten a leave of absence. This is another thing that pissed Bob off. Um, he gave me the job, and I said, oh, but I don't want to leave the chorus line. I love my job. I asked the management if I could get a leave of absence, and they went, no. And I somehow talked to Bob or told him. Anyway, his company called them, and suddenly, yeah, I had a six-month leave of absence, <laughs> and I got to come back to chorus line. So I was out there all day long, and then would take the car back, the, the limo back, and go to the show, go straight to the show and, and do Christine. So right after the show ended, I went out to dinner one night, and I bit down on a fork and chipped a tooth. And I was so embarrassed. So the next night, I went into a chorus line, and I did Christine, but I wouldn't smile because I went to see my chipped tooth. So a couple of weeks before that, Joe Papp had come. He was the head of the New York Shakespeare Festival. And he had said to me, I was doing great. He said, oh, my God, you're the, you're the best Christine we've ever had. 
you're so wonderful. And then apparently Michael saw it the night that I chipped my tooth and wouldn't smile. The next day I got the call that I was fired. Yeah, yeah, it was part of the chorus line experience. You weren't really in a you weren't really on the line unless you actually got fired. I mean, but after two and a half years, you know, I was okay. It wasn't okay with me. I was I was devastated. And he said, You've you know, while you were away, the line has gotten younger and you know, you've gotten more mature. You know, you would make a good um Kathy. I actually called him up. I, I like took my took my heart in my hands and called him and said, Hey, what's what's going on? He said, You're you know, you've gotten more mature. The line has youthened around you and Christine has to be one of the young people. I don't know whether that was bullshit. I don't know whether he wanted to bring in Chrissy Barker, who had been doing it in London and was tired and maybe was sleeping with Michael because later on she became a Cassie. And usually people who slept with Michael became Cassie. He felt like Cassie should be a person who had slept with a famous choreographer. (laughs) That was like one of the requirements for the role. So it could have been like a combination of Chrissy Barker could have been that the line really did get younger because a lot of the people who were supposed to be older, um, you know, Justin Ross had left and was replaced by Danny Weathers and the Danny Weathers, anyway, someone younger, but you know, all the, all the people who were supposed to be like the old gypsies, you know, the were younger, definitely were younger. Thinking back, he may have just hated me because of Bob. What are you doing these days, especially being a working actress in lockdown? A lot of voiceover, some dubbing for Netflix, dubbing into English. I love voiceover. I've got a home voiceover studio, and um, it's really fun. A lot of self-tapes. I would love to say, well, you know, my career took off, and, you know, I don't have to audition anymore, but it's not true. I mean, I came out to Los Angeles, and they were like, who? <laughs> and you're not blonde. Did you notice you're not blonde? So it was kind of a, a shock. I came out because... Uh, my boyfriend's then husband, you know, who I married, uh, got a great job out here in a law firm. And I married a, an adult. I felt that one of us should be a grown-up. So I was out here and, and kind of went along and then had children, and that kind of stopped things for a while, even though I didn't mean for it to. But, um, you know, I would have liked to keep going. So, you know, I'm cut it back, and people go, oh! All that jazz, you were wonderful. Oh my God, that's an amazing, iconic movie and an iconic role. And I'm always so incredibly grateful. Um, you know, and I love and I honor being in that movie and, and having worked with Bob and having had a chance to be around him and understand, you know, working at that level, that high level. And I always, always, you know, when I did any movies, I always expected, like, I was always waiting for it to get hard. Like, when when will this be difficult? When will you ask me to do this the 17th time? Even the, the scene that I did with Roy in, in, the, in his apartment, do you think I can be a movie star? You know, you're looking at my nose, aren't, aren't you? And, and, you know, that where we're smoking, it's a perfect day. It's a perfect way to end a perfect day. That ends with uh, Annie coming in and finding us in bed. So that one, we did this long shot and it was, you know, he wanted it to be stone, so there was camera movement and swooping, and he had tracks laid down in this apartment, and then the camera would bump. And so we really did this scene about 20 times for the camera, 
you know, I want to know what you think. Do you think I could be a movie star? And, you know, hold on and, and going to the stairway. And that was all sort of like one swooping take. And so we finally got the camera moved down and we did it. And he came over to me with his cigarette hanging and he, you know, stood in front of me and coughed and <coughs> like, <coughs> just, um, act better. <laughs> I'm flattered that he thought I understood what act better meant and that he thought I could and that, you know, I'm kind of flattered that that was his, um, that was his direction because, you know, act better means I trust you to act better also. But for me, it was like, oh, fuck. He doesn't like my acting. And he would stand in front of you with his cigarette and cough and cough and cough and you'd go, oh my God, please just don't die. Please, I'll do it. I'll do it better. I'll do anything you want. Just don't. Just don't, don't die. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll do it. What What do you want? What can I do for you? By the time he finished coughing, it was like, what? <laughs> I think maybe he knew it. Um, but I kept waiting for something to be that hard. And it just never was. You know, it was like four takes. Okay. Or three takes or one take. That's good. Well, Miss Geffner, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. This was awfully fun. Thank you for letting me talk about myself. I really appreciate it. We're back and we're talking about all that jazz. Before I forget, I want to thank Lee Gambin for hooking me up with Mr. Heim and Ms. Geffner. If you're unfamiliar with Lee, he's the author of quite a few books you should read, including one about John Carpenter's Christine. He does a podcast for Diabolique Magazine, a link to which I will publish in this week's show notes. So Bob Fosse had an unexpected return to the public eye in 2019 with an eight-part series called Fosse Verdon, which was over on the FX network, which was based in part on Sam Wasson's book on Fosse. Uh, I sat and watched all eight parts. Uh, my God, Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams, just fucking fantastic. I could not believe. I mean, I love Sam Rockwell. I loved him since the first time I've seen him. I, I, I'm trying to remember if that was maybe the Green Mile or maybe Galaxy Quest. I mean, ever since he has come into the public sphere, I've just so enjoyed him. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. One of the one of the lost treasures that people don't know about. Go rent it. Stan Rockwell, Julia Roberts, George Clooney. The not really true story of Chuck Barris, the head of the gong show who says he was a CIA hitman. It is genius. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Go rent it. It was so weird watching Fosse Verdon. And there's a part which is a reenactment of a scene that we see in all that jazz. And I'm pointing to the character on screen and I'm saying, I interviewed that guy, not actually that guy there, but the guy who he represents. <laughs> and it was like when they finally get to the all that jazz section, I think it's like the eighth episode. And they've got the stand-in for Roy Scheider, and it is Lin-Manuel Miranda. And I'm just like, there's so many levels going on here as far as interpretation and who's playing who in real life versus fantasy. And we have that scene that the Roy Scheider stand-in saying to the 
Fosse stand in, oh, this is an incredible rush to go up into the stands. Actually, I think that was in the uh, Roy Scheider behind the scenes stuff when he was talking about how wonderful that feeling of going up into the audience and hugging all those people. And then he told Fosse to do it. And we have Fosse doing that and how ex- exhilarated he is. But then we get that next moment, which is, okay, places everyone, we're going to start recording again. And all of a sudden, the audience just goes right back to dead. And it's just like, wow, that was all fake enthusiasm. I love that moment. There were so many great moments in Fozzie Verdon. It's a really, really well done TV movie um, or TV limited series, I think. I'm sorry. I have to say, as much as you love Sam Rockwell, I am at least as enthusiastic about Michelle Williams. I think... She legitimately gives one of the best performances I have ever seen in that uh, series. She becomes Gwen Verdon. If you've ever seen footage of Gwen Verdon or watched the movie Damn Yankees or seen anything Gwen Verdon's in, she has a very singular style. She has a very singular way of moving. And Michelle Williams, it's a transformation. I, I There are very few performances that I think just transform. I, you know, you see people like Albert Finney doing Hercule Poirot or something where you literally can't see the actor anymore. Or, uh, you know, I, I can't even think of other, uh, you know, performances that are just that snipe. Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood, maybe, uh, or Lincoln. She is that good in this. And certainly the... It, it's interesting because, I mean, even though I knew the bullet points of Fosse's life and Fosse's relationship with Gwen Verdon and how they, they were, you know, kind of mutual artists with each other, they they played off each other and made each other's work better... I didn't know a lot of that stuff. And, you know, being a huge fan of, of Fosse's work, certainly it was really inspiring and instructive to see be made that way. Um, and again, it, it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, the difference between Fosse and, and Joe Gideon, you know, you watch that limited run series, like that is not Joe Gideon, that guy. Um, that is, that is very, very, very like fundamentally wired differently man than the guy that he kind of, made himself in all that jazz. I was most impressed with Michelle Williams's voice as Verdon. I have heard interviews and seen interviews with Gwen Verdon before, and the she captured that vocal performance so well. She blew my mind. I did just see her as Gwen Verdon. There were times with, um, and you know, look, Rockwell was brilliant, but there's times that I saw Rockwell there and in the vocal inflections. I, I think that it's harder to be Bob Fosse just because he doesn't have as distinct a speaking style as um, Gwen Verdon does. But, um, yeah, Michelle Williams just was incredible. And also just even her movement. And there was a bit of that. I think there was one dance scene. It was from Dan Yankees. It was the who, who put the something when they do the mambo, that whole bit. But she she also had more to work with though. She she did because the the character of Gwen Verdon over that series did develop. We're going back to narrative arcs again. Like she had an arc. She had a series of arc, a serious arc. Fosse, did he have an arc? It's like somewhat, I mean, something of it, but not I mean, mostly he stubbornly kind of stayed himself. He stubbornly kind of didn't want to address his own faults or grow past them. Um, which I guess is a characteristic and you can kind of, you know, 
say that, but, but, you know, when you're looking at a narrative, when you're looking at characters, you look to, you know, characters to develop. You look for them to change and make decisions. And I mean, she did. I mean, Gwen Verdon did. Fosse, at least in this rendition, did not so much. Well, she had like this 15 year thing of buying the rights for Chicago. You heard about it and you saw little moments in this, but you didn't really get to that until like the seventh episode. And then it becomes like the thing and, and goes into the eighth episode. And yeah, it's, it is this arc that you're talking about where we see little seeds of it being planted. And I do have to say that this, that Fosse Verdon is a really good double feature with all that jazz because it is cut similarly in that we are moving through time and we're jumping from year to year to year. And I really like that that is the way that it's put together. Being, being a fan of all that jazz and watching it a few times and then watching Fosse Verdon, I was like, oh, well, this makes total sense. Yeah, it, they, it's, it's clear that they watched all that jazz many, many, many times. And I, I, I will criticize the use of that technique in that TV series, uh, the limited series, maybe a little bit, maybe mildly. It was maybe a little too much sometimes. There were a few times where I could have used a little more linearity. Maybe it's just because it was so much longer than a feature film. You know, like it gets a little exhausting. But I mean, overall, it's, it's very clear that everybody involved in that project were so, so loving toward these two artists, um, and so deeply committed to telling their stories and the story of their relationship together in a respectful and loving and, and entertaining way. The look of it was incredible. I, I, I agree. First of all, what you were saying, Mike, to watch all that jazz, um, if anyone had the wherewithal to just watch all, all that jazz, go back, watch, um, the whole of the, the series, which is only eight episodes and then watch all that jazz again, I think is a really, interesting exercise and to see how your perception changes of all that jazz after watching the Fosse Verdon. But also in seeing a film, well, a series that was made, a limited series that was made now compared to something to all that jazz made in 19, still released in 1979, you see the start and, and echoing the same stylistic things, right? There was a, digital perfection about Fosse Verdon. I mean, Fosse Verdon looks incredible. Uh, the, the production design's gorgeous. Those beautiful, like the the apartments, the play on, surprisingly, I think apartments and housing design plays a massive role in films and is probably underrated in a lot of ways. Like there was a lot of Gwen Verdon's, I felt, personality in her amazing apartment. And then when Fosse went out by himself, and his different abodes, you could get a lot of his personality from that as well. Um, but you could see how Fosse, I don't think Fosse would work in a digital age. I couldn't imagine Bob Fosse directing now a, a film in digital. He's just so, his film sensibility and the film grain seems to work so well for him. Oh, no, I would fight you on that. I don't, th- listen, no, I would. I think that, like, you know, when you get to real creatives and directors, I, I look, I think that celluloid is a lovely, lovely medium acquisition medium. Uh, you don't generally finish on celluloid. There's always a digital intermediary process. Uh, unless you're Chris Nolan, I think he did Dunkirk entirely chemically, but that is very much the exception. I don't think any major film or most minor films have been finished entirely without a digital step. 
uh, for like, you know, 20 years or something. What we're talking about is an acquisition format. What we're talking about is literally like acquiring the, the shots on the day with something with film running through the camera or a digital sensor. Now you can do miraculous things with digital sensors. Uh, you can make it look more like celluloid. You can make it look less like celluloid. You can make it look like a hybrid. Um, but the one thing, you know, the one thing you do get from working in digital and most, you know, most major directors do work in digital. I'm not talking about Chris Nolan or Quentin Tarantino. There are always holdouts, but generally speaking, digital doesn't have to look like that early digital look. Like, you know, digital got a bad name because like around 2000, we, we had the advent of HD and everything looked like, like, you know, like the worst sections of collateral, which I think is actually very stylistic and really works for that film. But, you know, when you're shooting like, you know, uh, you know, a, a film that's not supposed to look like that, you know, and it looks like that, then it's an issue. Um, you know, you look at the, 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 the pissy behavior of some of the critics when Michael Mann, you know, tried to do something really outside the box with a movie that is highly underrated, Miami Vice. Yeah, I don't care. You can yell at me on Twitter. It's true. So I think Bob Fosse could have probably like adapted. Um, I, I don't know if he'd want to. He'd probably be in his nineties now, I think, or something like that. But, but, you know, but I think that, you know, if you're an artist and you're really deeply committed to it, it's not about the mechanism by which you're acquiring the images. It's about what you're shooting. It's about what you're doing with them. It's about how you treat them. It's hard to say because it's a hypothetical because we don't, obviously we don't have him here to, right. and he hasn't been making films or have, or creating a um, evolution in his own career up to this point. So it's really hard to say, <laughs> but uh, I think there was a, um, that's, Ellen Heim actually mentioned something at one point that he wanted uh, sort of like little fake film blips or grant or like scratches put in the film and stuff like that. And, and then he decided that was too fake. Even at that time, it felt like it was too fake for him. He seems to, he seems to want the actual grit and grime or at that time, that's what he wanted. So when you watch something like Fosse Verdon, and you see his his actual techniques or, you know, cutting techniques uh, or shot angles or whatever put into that, it feels so different because it's not yeah. Bob Fosse doing that. Um, no, it's I not agree. that it's bad. It's not that it's bad. It just is interesting to see that contrast. In 2012, I, and I'm, this is going back to Alan Heim, in 2012, the Editors Guild in Los Angeles here uh, – asked its entire membership what they thought the best edited films of all time are. And they came up with a top 75. I don't know why they didn't turn up with a top 100. I guess being editors, they wanted it to be about three quarters the, you know, the length that anybody else wanted it. So our film, All That Jazz, number four of the top 75 best edited films of all time, according to editors, only behind Apocalypse Now, number three, Number two, Citizen Kane. And can you guys guess number one? Raging Bull. And and numbers five through ten, just FYI, Bonnie and Clyde, The Godfather, Lawrence of Arabia, Jaws, JFK. I, I, I question that one. And uh, I like that movie, but best edited ever? I don't know. Uh, French Connection, number ten. That's really interesting. But it changed the game. I mean, this is like, this is a movie that legitimately, which is why I'm so glad that we're talking about it. It's not just I mean, one of the greatest films ever. It's like, it literally changed the game. Uh, even though the editing style, you know, they came up with was kind of like, you know, their trial run was Lenny. 
because it was baked into the script, because that was what they came to the plate with. This was the original plan. Um, it seems so much more cohesive, so much more intentional. And it really changed the way a lot of like, you know, movies not only were cut, but like how a lot of people viewed movies, certainly musicals or, or anything kind of about, you know, making movies or making theater. Now there was one article I read that was saying that the fractured timeline style of Lenny was actually written into the screenplay, which counters what Haim has said. I mean, you can go back to like point blank and like, you know, like French new wave cinema, like, you know, to go to like discontinuous kind of experience, experiential or experimental editing narratives. But it's like, you know, cause point blank is like John Borman's point blank is a masterpiece. My God, that movie is amazing. You watch that movie. That's movies like 30 years ahead of its time. It's amazing. But this movie, it's an experience. It's like, you know, the way it's cut is so engrossing and so enveloping and the runtime is, is like at two hours it's just over two hours like a minute over two hours it's like 121 minutes and it feels like you know a like the best seven course meal of cinema you could possibly have with Fosse Verdon though what I found interesting about it was I think it really played on this idea of the symbiosis of their themselves um and it kind of presents them as sort of a two-headed beast they were kind of so reliant on each other. Once they came into each other's worlds, uh, it was also interesting the way that it presented um, how the women in his life weren't just muses, in, if you wanted to call it that, but first, but actually gave him the introduction or furthered his career in some way. Like there was, it, it kind of made a point of Joe McCracken, his first wife. She was much more famous than him definitely more famous than him at that time. And the same with Gwen Verdon, like early in the relationship, she was a star. Nobody knew who Bob Fosse was. And then also, obviously, in terms of this two-headed beast, Gwen Verdon was instrumental in the creation of his work, some might say just as important. It's it, The same thing played out in all that jazz is that what played out in Fosse Verdon, which was a lot of the time, and I think this is something that's, common with creatives and um, can be scary but completely common, which is I don't know what to do with something. And often uh-huh. Fosse was presented with that that question for himself. I don't know what to do with this. Like when he's given a crap song in all that jazz, the take off with us song <laughs> that he then turns into this sexual orgy, this am- amazing sequence initially you didn't know what to do with it you know um and in in fossey verdon it shows that every time he didn't know what he was going to do he turned to gwen verdon but he does that in all that jazz too he did he did that in all that jazz he comes in and leland characters character leland palmer's character is just like reminding him how he didn't re- remember the name of his girlfriend in philadelphia the weather girl or whatever and and it's like you know what was her name dorothy what oh yeah darling sweetheart honey like was it Dorothy? I forget. I forget what the actual name was. I, I, I'm just blip, blipping out. But it was because that's what gives him the idea to do this. Like, oh, I'm going to do a number about like how meaningless sex leads you to oblivion. <laughs> and it's like one of the best, you know. And for further information, you can go to YouTube and look up Paula Abdul's cold hearted video, which literally rips off the entire erotica sequence. 
And it's a cool song, and I won't sing it now. But I'd like to. There's an amazing line in Fosse Verdon as well where he, he says – I think I was trying to think of the point in the in the series where he says it, but it's what's the difference between sex and applause? You only applaud someone you love. That's when he's really riffing on the the Lenny character and is actually doing stand up in black and white at one point. That's right. That's right. 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 That's right. So it was him, yeah, being doing the stand up on stage, the pretend stand up or the, the, the mind's eye stand up. But that was sort of, you know, it caps, it capsulates it so, so well, you know, just his whole life in this idea that, yeah, that's why you, that's why people go into showbiz, you know, cause they stand up there, they get applause and they know people love them for that artifice, <laughs> whatever that artifice is that they're presenting their showbiz personality. And it's it's incredibly addictive, and that's what you, you and, and I think Bossy Verdon managed to present that really, really, really well. Uh, it had though that symbiotic nature of it though. There was a number of scenes, heaps of them throughout the film, where if you looked at it, you could almost see the the Verdon Fosse dialogue as being a, an inner dialogue, like one person's inner dialogue. One moment was when. Um, he was having the heart attack and the doctor's trying, they're, they're, they're squabbling between each other. And the doc- doctor says, you're, hang on, you're having a heart attack as he's, you know, as they're arguing with each other. Um, uh-huh. And also just even the way that, you know, you look at, I mean, it was the, the title of this is Fosse slash Burden, basically almost one word. And that the Verdon Fosse legacy, which has Verdon first, is is actually written as one word. Uh, there's a lot of symbiosis between them. They, they're, they're just even the way that his life ended with him basically dying in her arms, dying of a, uh. a heart attack. You know, being um, this thing that he was fearful of, but also you know this mind body connection, this idea of you know you, he put his heart into everything. And then to, you know, she was there at that moment of his death when he's going to the opening of the revival of Sweet Charity. I mean, you can't write that shit. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Ladies and gentlemen, by way of introduction, this is a film about trickery and fraud, about lies. We don't talk about Napoleon or Julius Caesar. We're talking about Elmir. Elmir? Elmir? Who is Elmir? That question has yet to be answered with any real precision. Can I kiss you too? Anybody wants to eat? In the world of the jet setters among us beautiful people, everybody knows Elmir. But Elmir what? He has about 60 times the same name. The Hori? He's called his name Hori, Uri, Bori, Suri, Kori, Bari, Dori, all the... Oh, Papa. With U-R-Y, 60 names. His real name was Elmir Ferenc Hoffman. Then 60 personalities, as much lies and as much real. Well, sounds very <laughs> Jesuitic. <laughs> yes, it's his world is a world of make-believe. I'm not an actor. Not an actor? Elmir. I'm not an actor. 
I am not a professional actor. He's a leading actor in this movie. His profession, it's true, is painting, painting fakes. Among all fakers, Elmir is number two. Once I saw a man from Ibiza writing a book on fake who came to see me to Paris. He said, I heard you are the first man who bought a, an Elmir. And that man's name was Clifford Irving. The important distinction to make when you're talking about the genuine quality of a painting is not so much whether it's a real painting or a fake. It's whether it's a good fake or a bad fake. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Orson Welles' F for Fake. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Emma and David. So, David, what's going on with you lately? Way too much, but really good stuff. Uh, I have my own podcast for Outfest, which is the organization in Los Angeles that runs the LA Gay and Lesbian Film Festival called Outfest, but they do a lot of other things. And they started their first ever podcast and they asked me to do it. So we're in the middle of season one. Uh, we're almost done recording it. Thank you. I know it's a big deal. We're almost done recording everything. Uh, there are like, uh, several, uh, more than half the episodes are up right now, but the people I talk to are, you know, folks like John Cameron Mitchell, Christine Vachon, Justin Simeon, who did Dear White People, uh, who else? Jim Fallon, Miss Coco Peru, talking about Trick 20 years later, which is a great movie, by the way. You should watch that. Jonathan Groff, uh, documentarian Jeffrey Schwartz, uh, filmmaker H.P. Mendoza. So it's awesome and you can get it on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. It's called The Out. Outcasts presented by Outfest. I think there are a few other Outcasts on there, but it's like, this is the Outcast presented by Outfest. So I'm doing that. Um, I am editing a documentary for the Shutter Network about queer horror, which I'm very excited about. It's going to be really cool. And that's going to come out in, uh, in 2021. I'm also working on my own documentary still over the years, which is called Heretics, which is about Exorcist to the Heretic and how it was shot and its ongoing legacy as one of the most misunderstood movies and demonized and despised movies in Hollywood history. It was a huge budget movie for Warner Brothers in 1977 and has become uh, either forgotten or a punchline. And yet it is the movie in the middle of John Borman's body of work, which irrevocably changed him and led him, led him to direct movies like Excalibur and the Emerald Forest and Hope and Glory and The General. Without Exorcist to the Heretic and the stuff he learned on that, he would not have made those movies like that. And I had the very fortunate opportunity to talk to Borman and I got him on camera and I've talked to Linda Blair and Louise Fletcher and a bunch of other people who are still with us. And I cannot wait to finish this movie, but everything else has to calm down first. So that's going to come out in 2021 as well. But if you want to hear me now, if you thought I was interesting, uh, go to Spotify or iTunes and look up the Outcast presented by Outfest. Or you can find me on Twitter, David Kittredge, uh, K-I-T-T-R-E-D-G-E, or Instagram. Uh, I'm also on Facebook from time to time. I'd love to connect. And Emma, what's new in your world? I'm stuck in book world at the moment. So um, I'm very insular, which is appropriate while we're going through a, a global pandemic at the moment. But I've... Um, 
just delivered a uh, well, actually at the start of the year, delivered a book which is I co-wrote with a, a UK author called Jez Connolly, and it's on. It's another monograph. I've already written a monograph on the fly, David Cronenberg's The Fly. Uh, and this monograph is on seconds, John Frackenheimer's Seconds from 1966. Yeah, fantastic film. So good! Very exciting. It was really exciting doing the co-writing as well. I've never actually co-written a book and I found it to be really joyous, exciting experience. But Jez is a, just a beautiful mind, amazing author himself. So that was, that was great. And so that's the Basically, we're just waiting for it to be edited and hopefully come out next year. Then I'm also working on a book, which is actually a book of essays on The Bride of Frankenstein. So I'm editing that one and I've got a whole bevy of contributors who are coming up with some exciting angles um, and uh, I'm going to see how I can put it together as a book when I get them. And that's another one that hopefully will come out next year. So that's pretty much my main stuff. Well, thank you again, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth and Lee Gambin take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.